be Saturday. What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcons from the Falcon Screen, and we are joined by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, people. Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. <sighs> Resident TSCR film critic and broadcaster in Everything About Town, Stephen Hill. Howdy. And we have joining us for especially Ian Barr from Film Club in Darlinghurst and also a Sydney critic and film festival junkie. Oh, awesome. Thanks, Thanks for that intro, Glenn. So we are in the middle of the Sydney Film Festival at the halfway point. It is, we've seen a lot, a lot, a lot of movies, and we're going to be talking about a lot more on this program and more into the podcast. Five more days left. What we're seeing, what you should see. How's everyone feeling? Yeah, well, the, the strange noise I made into the microphone was a reflection of, of my brain activity uh, being pulverized by punishing films and bad films. It's been a fairly underwhelming festival. I've had a few really amazing standouts. One they've of been great films. Don't get me wrong. We are, we are going to be talking about on the next episode. Chris and I are very excited to talk about probably one of the biggest ticket items at this festival. Yeah. But uh, yeah, there's been some disappointing ones. Some very disappointing ones. How do other people feel about this festival so far? Yeah, it always happens. I feel that mm. you know you start a festival with enthusiasm, a lot of energy, and then you know there's this mid-festival slump that happens, and then you're just waiting to get through the next day, pretty much. And this is where I'm, I'm at. I feel like I've kind of structured it so it's maybe like weaker at the beginning, like <laughs> things I was maybe less anticipating, and then towards the end, it picks up with the you know, the more the more anticipated things. So, um, but yes, but I'm I'm holding out hope that it yeah, will you have that sort of can release, release crescendo right near the end. So yeah, I mean, but I mean, if you don't have those expectations, like there's a few unexpected ones that you, that's always a lifting thing. It's more when. There's the expectation. There's probably been a few films that I thought were going to stand out. Maybe haven't been quite as exceptional as I thought. But there's also been some films that I went to that didn't, I wasn't expecting much from and actually delivered. So, yeah, a bit you, of both. You always have to take a punt at these kinds of festivals. Yeah, but leap I, of faith. Yeah. yeah, leap of faith. And um, that's worked out maybe a couple of times so far, but it feels like across the board it's a little bit of a disappointing yeah. program, except for the documentaries. The documentaries are fantastic. I think that's, they've been standout, and I really, really appreciate uh, how many of them have really you know, kind of held my interest. Mm. So I need to actually program, uh, you know, make sure my documentary viewing is up to scratch because it hasn't been in the past. So the first film we are talking about is one that had its local premiere on Sunday night. It is Jennifer Kent's Nightingale from the director of The Babadook. It is probably, in terms of the mainstream press, the biggest story at this festival because there has been a lot of coverage of the audience reaction to this now we were at the screening there were there have been very exaggerated reports of walkouts there was one report which said a majority of the audience left this is not true you would have heard of majority of audience left certainly in, uh, i counted at least on the mezzanine there it's about five to ten people leaving it's less than half of the amount that have walked out during other films including high life which we'll be going on to talk about but i think it's very important to recognize that while um as jennifer Cantor said it is a legitimate re- reaction to walk out of a film if you so wish um the fact is this happens regularly at film festivals and it's important especially in the case of a film as controversial such as this to unpack why it's a it's definitely a tough watch i found i did find it pretty upsetting um i can't blame people for walking out i did find it fairly obnoxious when someone went out and screaming over the film at a you know at a screening with cast and crew in attendance um i, I think you can do that on social media but, I think yeah. the same thing happened at its Venice premiere, though. There was a, a very uh, misogynist comment from a press R- member right, from during the, the, at the press screening. Though, yeah, so. from the opposite perspective yeah. in this case. This was a person who was upset about, a woman upset about violence against 
women. At, at this point, we should give a content warning that we will be discussing in the course of the show um, in relation to Nightingale and a few other films, um, issues related to violence and sexual violence and as well as violence against women. Um, to recap on what The Nightingale is, it is set in 1825 in Tasmania and it is a story of um, Aisling Francioski, who was an Irish convict along with a husband who live in an area controlled by their com- commander and a few other soldiers played by Slam Kafklafter from the Hunger Games and Damon Harriman. A number of very harrowing events occur which uh, lead to what has been described by the filmmakers, I think accurately, as a vengeance story which takes us and the main characters through the Tasmanian wilderness. Um, there are a number of films at this festival which I feel have dealt with these sorts of issues very poorly and have dealt with it in a either immature or extraneous or even gratuitous manner. I would not put The Nightingale in this category to a great extent because I feel it is a very well-considered film. It is a film that shows the consequences of these actions, whether they be tragic or whether they promote a semblance of a sense of justice. And separate for the issues we have discussed, it is simply a beautifully performed film by Anselm Franciosi and a beautifully shot film. It really captures the Tasmanian wilderness in a way that I've very rarely seen. I agree. I felt I. I think the the four by three framing is used really well. It feels claustrophobic, but also really open and really tall. Um, I I thought yeah the the camera work is amazing. Um, what's interesting about this film, thinking about it now, is in some ways it feel it's such a visceral experience watching it. Um, there's so much uh, upsetting material in there that it, it's really a kind of nerve shaking experience. I can see why people could take this film to task because when you think about it, this really is kind of like a conventional revenge, almost like an exploitation movie territory. And um, we can get into questions about to what extent um, the severity of the violence depicted um, in this film is necessary, I, I suppose. I think uh, it was justified, the violence, not only justified in the sense of how it's portrayed, but also it is making a very important point in a connective tissue, not only about violence against women, but also regarding Aboriginal history. That's right. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a truth which you have to acknowledge. I mean, if you're uncomfortable with it, it's more your problem than the film's problem, to be honest. I, I think that's what a lot of people don't understand. I completely agree that not shying away from the violence and depicting atrocities is right for a film which is about... Um, you know, historical violence against women, the massacre of the Aboriginal people in Tasmania, um, as well as just the terrible ways that convicts were treated. Um, but I can, looking back on the film, I could understand why. I mean, when, when I'm comparing it to exploitation kind of films, those don't have the backdrop of historical um, atrocities to give weight or justification to this kind of depiction. But they depict the same sorts of, of things, you know, people being raped and having their family members murdered in order to justify a, you know, go out and kill them all revenge narrative. I think it, it's a testament to how um, how well written and directed it is that I didn't view the film in those terms. It's only, in, well, you know, in retrospect that I can see that the the contours of the narrative really follow that trend. I agree. Uh, but also at the same time, I didn't see it as a revenge narrative for the most part. I think this is mostly about two cultures coming together in the most unlikely of circumstances. It's, it's actually, I wouldn't classify it as a typical revenge story at all for the most part. And I think 
it's mostly about trauma and overcoming that. So in, in that sense, you know, how two cultures with their own respective traumas have to deal with that and mm. come together and still reconcile their differences and still learn something from each other. In that sense, I found it a hopeful story, which yeah. is weird because it's, it doesn't seem like a hopeful story in the beginning, but it's actually more hopeful than you realize by the end of it. I agree with you. Um, I think the relationship between the two leads, the Aboriginal tracker and the Irish convict woman, is so uh, well-written and it's completely believable. There are times that I think there's maybe a little bit of a modern sensibility being projected onto history here in terms of left-wing ideology coming through but i don't think it's it's for the most part i don't think it's too heavy-handed and i think the characterization and the trajectory is believable i want to be clear with what i was saying before that that's just a thought i've been having i was completely swept away by the film really and um i think it's incredibly well made i think it's definitely a progression from the babadook for jennifer kent i think it's an incredible film i also take the view that and she noted that the screening that this is a film uh similar to a common remember margaret atwood making as regards the handmaid's tale there's nothing in this film that is depicted that has not occurred throughout history and certainly i will never criticize any filmmaker for choosing to tell any particular story and i think in terms of the arguments over it it's how explicit it is i think if you're going to make a film about that territory it's not right to shy away really i think i think it's it's honest no i think um i there's a lot of films at the festival i think judy and punch will go on to talk about later i feel uh deal with some of these issues but deal with it in a not very considered manner this certainly does also i think it's important to know that this film has Aboriginal input and, you know, involvement right. in the film and they, they're leading this narrative. So it is with their consent, but also from their perspective as much as from a, you know, colonial white perspective. So I think it's important to note that, you know, it's not coming from an outsider perspective as well. The Jennifer Kent has gone through great lengths to actually involve the story, you know, if the Aboriginal story she's telling and involve the people involved to make sure that it's, she's telling it the right way. Mm. And I also appreciate that in terms of representing the racism against Indigenous people that she's gone for some subtleties that there's this child character that goes along you know with who the way that his story develops really i think shows how racism is culturally yes um culturally imbued Um, i think just touching on that point there are a couple of elements of the story which i do necessarily feel as necessary to the end of the to the film's ends certainly the later death of one young character and you can make make an argument that the second sexual assault and certainly the argument has been made wasn't necessarily yeah, i think it's completely wrong i think, I think it's the wrong. first i think the first sexual assault sequence you could you could probably cut or leave inferred but i think the second is is making so many points about um not just violence against women but the situation of and the situation of the characters and also the situation of the Irish and the situation of convicts in Tasmania. There's a lot of nuance here, but also it's making a very clear point about violence as a specifically cyclical phenomenon mm. and as, as a specifically male phenomenon. Um, now, I would recommend people to seek out this film. It is playing again on Sunday the 16th of June at the Dendy Newtown at 6.15pm. It is sold out. Can However, just, um, usually tickets may become available. Oh, just one more point. I think on paper this sounds like it could be a really heavy-handed message movie, but it tries to show nuance in its point. Um, The villain is perhaps maybe a little bit too moustache-twirling, but we do have to remember that this is an incredibly brutal period in history, and it has enough nuance to show that men are also victims here. It's not just a movie of demon men versus victim women. It's really about just a, a hellish environment. 
I think even the villain has some nuance to it, he especially does. with his relationship with the child, because you yes. get to see some kind of softness in how he wants to mold the child in, in some kind of, you know. So there is that relationship that develops, which makes him more nuanced than just a, you know, flat out black and white villain. Um, so that is Nightingale. I actually disagree that it's too much of a moustache-twirling role. I would encourage people to look at Journey's End, an excellent film that Sam Claflin made last year, screening at the Veterans Film Festival, see just how brilliant an actor he is. The next film we are talking about premiered at the State Theatre on Monday night, which is Claire Denis' new film, High Life. It is starring Robert Pattinson and Juliette Binoche. It is set contemporaneously, however, in space at whatever time... Uh, with time travel and how space dynamics work, that that is. It's at some time in space. Um, the descriptions, whether being the program or by critics for the film, have been notably oblique. Suffice to say, um, it pl- it is about a group of people who are in space. There are experiments going on, and it, uh, while using a lot of eighties and classical Star Trek style production design, leads to some of the more sinister elements of what could happen if a number of people are left alone for a long time in the vast expanse of our solar system and beyond. Ian, what did we think of High Life? Um, I was initially... I'm a huge Claire Denis fan, uh, as I think maybe a few people around this table are. Um, And I think my initial reaction was disappointment given how long it's been in the making. I think she's been working on it for like 15 years. Philip Um, Seymour Hoffman was originally meant to be the lead. Well, Vincent Gallo was actually... Oh, really? um, Yeah. Previously, and it just, and I mean, the first, Before he lost his mind. The first segment of the film is set on the ship as Robert Pattinson attends to a, a baby, and it's so funny to imagine Vincent Gallo um, attending <laughs> to an infant child, like just nursing it. And it's anyway, um, but yeah, going off track. Uh, so after that segment, and I feel the, f- and then the final segment are kind of the same situation. There, uh, I mean, the bookending segments are Robert Pattinson attending to his child and it's those scenes are very tender they're like depicted um there's an amazing performance by that young baby who plays willow (laughs) (laughs) i agree yeah and um there's a slightly less uh less amazing performance by the uh grown-up version of that um of that character uh i thought the middle section when it turns into a kind of conventional space opera was probably where kind of fell apart a bit uh Claire Denis even though uh she's amazing at so many things um character is not and like naturalistic like a naturalistic presentation of drama is not like her strong suit I think and it doesn't have to be because that's not what her films are about uh but uh, there are like still a lot of interesting themes throughout there's the fact that it kind of plays out more like a a prison movie than a space one the design is sort of to evoke some really crappy facilities somewhere um, yeah and it's also just i think it deserves credit for just being kind of one of the most oppressive bleak horrible looking space films <laughs> i think i've seen well i think it continues the sort of existential territory of much of her early work mm, yeah. i don't know if it maybe as effectively as some of her great films but the, you know you can go back to Beautiful and uh, and it all is about people continue sort of operational exercise so you have all these people that are on death row that are just floating in space yeah Bertrevi being her uh, French Foreign Legion Legion, film and probably her most famous one Mm. and I think there's there's a lot of structural similarities here and that it's just about one very lonely member of that kind of program sort of looking reflecting back on what went wrong and how it all fell apart and how the group dynamics kind of 
disintegrated in yeah. isolation and ending and, in some kind of big transcendent moment. Yeah, yeah, and the and the Julie Julia Benesh character is really interesting. Sort of, it was interesting like that nonfiction, uh, the film we had her and she talked about how as she gets older you play Fedra, mm. and this is almost like a Fedra type character. And this sort of person just bursting with passion and wanting, you know. Yeah, and I thought that really was, I thought a really fascinating role. And I think once she leaves the scene, the last. Uh, even even a little bit before when it becomes a bit more sort of conventional, it kind of loses yeah. some of its some of its energy. But before that, I was quite quite captivated. But there's probably a part around about the two thirds mm. of the way through where it just kind of gets a little too it's kind epis- of, episodic. Or yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting the existential element of it, uh, which you know you can tie back to films like Solaris and Stalker. Mm. Yeah, which very, mentioned. yeah, you can see Solaris influence. Yeah, yeah and well, I mean, she yeah. was a casting director for Tarkovsky at one point as well. Really so, well. You know. yeah. Anyway, uh, I'll throw over to Chris, who I think is a little more negative. <laughs> Yeah. Um, oh man, I don't know. <laughs> let's I, let's fight about this movie. We haven't been fighting about this uh, any movie actually for a while. Yeah, yeah. We we we're entering into the, film agreement. It's like Broad Agreement Club. <laughs> film. Yeah. Um, yeah. This was uh, not, this was not great. My view. I, yeah, I found it to be surprisingly uninteresting visually. Um, I would agree, actually. Yeah, I think it's it's also the first without her regular cinematographer Agnes Godard and. Yeah. It really shows. I think there's like a kind of sterility to those images. and it, There's this flat digital kind of surface to everyone's faces and to the lighting. Which is probably the point because it does cut back to the earth scenes are in this kind of warm that's, that's 16 true. millimeter, but it still <laughs> but is pretty oppressive. Speaking of the earth scenes, uh, the oh my God, there's this, at the moment, there's a, oh, so Dr. No. Professor, can oh. you explain what's happening to our characters in space? Yes, well, actually there's this experiment going on. He re- it talks about all these things that are plainly obvious over the course of the narrative in the film, and it's, I thought it, c- it can't just be there for the sake of the exposition. Those we Surely we're going to return to those characters. It's, f- no. it's funny to the sum of all fears with guys just explaining the plot to the camera or the end scene <laughs> in Psycho. There's so many bad examples of this throughout history and beginning in Mission Impossible 2 uh, yeah just, just bad I mean the funny thing is is that I've noticed a lot of critics uh, have been you know uh, sort of some of them have been using like this is kind of the stick to bash Christopher Nolan with and his tendencies and then there's just that one example of just awkward exposition right there in the uh in that scene, which I actually learned afterwards, she fought to include in the film when it feels Why? like the kind of thing that people force you yeah. to include. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of exposition, though. There's a lot of moments where characters that say, we're low on this, or we need this, or these were the prison circumstances back then, uh, or this is what was happening back on Earth. There's all these just dumps, and they happen in uh, not succession, but throughout the film, and it's always characters trading information, and it's I feel it was very blatant. It really took me out of it. This this film is about people, you know, stuck in this one state of mind suffering. But to compare it to Beau Trevi, there's a lot more psychological depth. There's a lot more that's inferred and there's a lot more mystery to that film. Hmm. Um, here, I just thought I'm watching a bunch of unpleasant people be horrible to each other and the same kind of scenarios repeat. Yeah. I mean, I think there is like a kind of interesting uh, comparison with the the idea of a prison and then the idea of the body as a prison and mm. then there's like this you know very attenuated focus on like the body failing and fluids the and fluids, secretion yeah. and ejaculation and uh, bleeding and whatnot and it's just about the very inconvenience of having a body and against the vastness and, of space and even the idea of sensuality of it being with the sort of the virtuality of you know the um i'm not going to borrow the woody allen thing the orgasmatron where they all go into the <laughs> to the orgasmatron but we have this idea of how oh. sensuality is even been altered by you know this this sort of 
artificial creation of yeah and you know this whole idea of you know modernity and science and how yeah. i i gotta say that that part was stupid i, I <laughs> no, no. it was it, it like it's it's been like talked about a lot on the net like after it's it's premiere is we're talking this, about the box the, fu- the fu- yeah. box scene. I, was, I just wanted yeah. to use that in case I wasn't allowed to uh, use the language yeah. no, I, that, that, <laughs> that was one of the parts that didn't actually bother I, me this, I, I, that made sense oh, to the, me the I thought the scene, the scene was visually was amazing good, yeah. the, the editing the, the tone the way that the camera is studying Binoche's yeah, body yeah. fantastic yeah. but you know, yeah the idea of this machine that leaks semen on the floor and someone's got to clean it up is just so dumb <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, that part less so yeah, also like yeah. I was having flashbacks to Barbarella and I was like you know that was a much more fun playful right. way to do it kind of thing so you know I will, you, I will have to say it ends I think really quite strongly and it kind of brought me back to maybe like what I thought was like the emotional core that it was setting sorry up. are we talking about the film or the orgasmic uh, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. Just so, just so we're clear. Yeah. Um, I actually didn't really like the ending. I feel we were sort of—it's a Julieta situation where we were robbed a bit of an ending. I get what they were going for, but um, there was a flourish or a multiple flourishes which I weren't necessarily expecting or uh, bestowed upon, or necessarily promised. But I felt it would have made the film much better and would have um, ended it on a on a high or on a way that uh, would have made it much more enduring and memorable. Um, in terms of this movie. I loved. I liked the performances a lot. I actually liked the set design. It reminded me a lot of the, as I said earlier, a Star Trek. I can't remember the name of the. It's a. It's a pretty renowned visual artist who. Oliver Eliasson. Yes, right. And um, mm. so yeah, a lot of a lot of thoughts gone into that. Yeah, yeah. On, a, on a small budget. I've been wondering whether this being made in English had an impact on the actual translation that's, of that's the, the language of the dialogue movie. is really the bad. dialogue is really it's bad. Constantly yeah. distracting. Not, yeah. Yeah, because you know when the scenes are actually silent and they're just you know visual poetry kind of in motion, you kind of get into the mood of the movie, and mm. then somebody says something, and you're suddenly like taken aback, like oh my god, I'm watching a bad movie. Mm. You know, it's suddenly you're reminded of the badness of it all. <laughs> so it's yeah, uh, I wonder if it was made in you know. I, th- I think even the, even the opening scene where there's the, the they're talking. Uh, I mean, the first word, one of the first words you hear is uh, Robert Pattinson teaching the his daughter to say taboo. Uh-huh. Which is kind of setting up a theme, but it's just there to yeah. set up a theme, really. And uh, I just that felt really graceless. To steal a comment from Manola Douglas, this movie does throw out a lot of themes like that that don't, I think, really tie together in a way that's satisfying. Mm. And sometimes I appreciate that kind of um, scatterbox of you know ideas, but approach. But here, I, the film just felt too aimless for me. For the mo- for a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I'm a little more positive, but it's also maybe just me kind of playing devil's advocate and you know, by being, all means, being on being on both sides of the. By fence. all means, we should have someone uh, you know more positive about this film because the it's been overwhelmingly praised. It's been overwhelmingly positive, except for that at, at that state theater screening where you could just feel more walkouts feel than uh, Nightingale for sure. You could yeah. feel a yeah, sense. Yeah, I could hear the audience. I could hear the audience comments the afterwards. And, yeah. 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 yeah, and I it's more. I would have, I would have much preferred life. to see it. The way it was meant to be seen in an empty theater, in a very solitary, and yeah, or on Netflix in a year, stare into the void, and the void will stare back at you. I saw Night of Cups uh, like that and really enjoyed oh, no, that, it in, that was in a the very, funniest. very um, empty theater. But yeah, actually, you know that night, that Night of Cups screening that we were we were there together yeah. with Chanel and we created a new game that me and Chanel <laughs> were playing during High Life and also uh, which is Count the Walkouts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. yeah. I've done that for a couple of Terrence Malick movies. So this is uh, so that is High Life. Um, to wrap up the discussion about it, um, the one thing that really got me and the Barbarella comparison is interesting in that 
I don't like Barbarella because it it has this one civic, not pr- pretty uninteresting tone throughout. Um, this has that too, but the inverse. Instead of it's very mellow. There's no characters really strongly to react to anything they are told, and that's fine once in a while. But you do it consistently. There's nothing for the audience to latch on to, really engage with, and that really bothered me. That is high life. Oh, I didn't want to like compare it to Barbarella in any other sense, no. apart from the Orgasmatron. So don't oh, worry. Um, I mean, please. One, one, final, one final comparison is um, the. It's, you actually hear Robert Pattinson singing the uh, title. The title of the film is a little kind of warbly. Uh, ballad at the end, right. um, and yeah. which brought to mind Gran Torino and Clint Eastwood singing <laughs> t- the title of it. I didn't song. realize that was Robert Pattinson's. <laughs> it was, yeah. I found that out. High Life too. song. Wow, because it did not sound like uh, uh, Stuart Stuart Staples from Tindersticks, who didn't he usually employs and who mm. did the score as well. Right, interesting. So, so High Life, which takes the cake for the worst role credits bo- moment at this festival, is screening on Friday night. No, it doesn't. At, oh, sorry, Dirty God. Dirty God Dirty does. God does. Um, having said that, it is it's an a excellent great film. film. Yeah. Yeah. And it is premiering tonight. Um, my interview with Sacha Palak and Vicky Knight is up on the 2SCR page on Falcon Screen. Go watch it. It's really great. One of the best films of the festival. Uh, High Life is also screening on Saturday at 8.45 at Event Cinema's George Street and Tuesday night 6.15 as part of the Extra Sessions of Daniel Opera Keys. The next one we are talking about is Synonyms, which is an Israeli film from the kindergarten teacher director Nadav Lapid. It is about a gentleman who was in the Israeli military or may still be in active service but in the reserves, I haven't seen the film, leaves and goes to France and where he uh, has a lot of challenges uh, as regards his Israeli identity. What did we think of synonyms. I thought this was really interesting. I think this is actually one of the best films of the competition and it's grown in my mind since I've seen it. Partly I think because it has so many individual standout scenes um, which are very funny and very striking in terms of visuals and conception. Um, I think the we're going to talk later on about the mountain. Um, Ugh. Yeah, exactly. I, I was exactly. actually yeah, I was going to bring them up as a there. point of yeah. comparison because there's one film that has just one idea kind of hammered, right. hammered endlessly, and then Synonyms is just this very erratic, going in all directions. Just, yeah, and you know, they both constantly like just reinventing itself. Right, and they both kind of have a um, a character who has a kind of studied blankness to them as mm. the lead, but in Synonyms, mm. it's an incredible performance. Yeah. You know, the, <laughs> there's yeah. so much yeah. bottled up rage in, in this I mean, person. Yeah, it's it, it's trauma. I think it's really just yeah. Like, as, as soon as as soon as you just think of it as a film that is about acting out in a mm. in a way, it just it it just starts to become really rich and just the ways this character is acting out and why he is and and uh, just all the and also just the use of language, the mm. fact that the way it played the the idea of language playing into your identity yeah. is just very rich and n- never really just and, settling on one like kind yeah. of thesis. And that's well. a fascination with the, f- the French culture itself. So you've got lots of references to the French New Wave. Ah, yes, yeah. mm. He's dressed in the orange um, orange overcoat, just like John Paul Belmondo. So mm. there's all this like Pierre Le Freud. There's a lot of sort of references to, to, to great French films. And you have this really interesting sort as well of as mixture of identity. And also as, as, the, as the narrative develops, you actually also get mm. the sort of darker elements of, of the of French culture. Of I mean, I Very thought when, so. when they have the citizenship, um, when, they're, when, they're, when they're in that um, teaching class and they're, thought, they're singing the Mas International. I, th- I thought the young woman's oboe playing was very funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Speaking of that, that French New Wave kind of influence, I've, I really like how they updated the kind of, you know, 16 millimeter news camera go out on the street spirit of the French New Wave with tiny digital cameras. And I think the changing textures of, you know, going from cinema camera to these really gritty and raw, mm. intimate little um, 
cameras really works for just the kind of fractured mindset that of the the the, um, the director of it, uh, Nadav Lapid, uh, made a really excellent film called Policeman about seven years ago. Which um, I'm a little fuzzy on plot details now, but that was had a really interesting structure where it was contrasting this kind of like anti-terrorist police unit and like you know the um, the more like militant actions of this student, this like little sort of group of students um mm. and yeah it was that was a really impressive film and i didn't see the kindergarten teacher which was remade with maggie gyllenhaal this year that was a decent movie i haven't, oh, seen, no, sorry, I haven't, I haven't seen the original story i've only seen the remake but um yeah i'm keen to revisit that now because it's synonyms yeah. is just a probably one of the best directed films i've seen oh yeah it, it's so um in terms of editing and composition it's so interesting that he it's, <laughs> it, it's um always th- uh creating these kind of like simple frames and then throwing something up or disrupting it with a sudden movement of the but camera. It's, and it's also just letting that central performer take, like, just, you know... Take just, over the just film, guide yeah. the film. I, I was kind of, like, reminded of Leo's Carax a bit. Um, yeah, yeah that definitely. kind of very acrobatic sort of quality to it. Yeah, that's a good comparison. I also think um, this... It's really about... Uh, it's, criti- it's criticizing, I think, the, the French culture as at the same time as criticizing the Israeli culture at finding... Um, but also but also remaining kind of ambiguous enough mm. that it can still... Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not a heavy-handed round. Yeah, yeah. So, Synonyms is... Screen- well, it's not screening yet at the festival, but it will be in generally soon. We have to wrap up here. We will be continuing on the podcast talking a lot more things at the Film Festival. Subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. And if you're listening now, just keep on listening. I'd like to thank Stephen Hill from 2SER for joining us and continuing the discussion, as well as Ian Barr from Film Club over in Darlinghurst. No, no problem. Listen to yeah, the come podcast. Rent, come, come rent DVDs. Yeah, do go to film clubs. It's great. great. Just go there, hang out. It's fantastic. I see you and just chill out there. Oh, and we're putting on a program as well of uh, Tangerine Dream scored films at uh, Palace Central too. When can we catch that? Oh, that starts with uh, Michael Mann's Thief on the 5th of July and then continues like every fortnight. All right, so this has been Glenn Falcon, and Chris Evans of Rotten Nehru. Stay tuned to the podcast. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies and come to film club. Good night. Bye. And we're on the Film Fight Club podcast. Just a correction to something I mentioned a moment ago. Um, maybe Synonyms might not be in general release. I don't think it has a distributor. And Aww. it's not a movie that I think plays into the limited range of art house releases we get at in. It's I very interested in not making money. Yes. I can't say the marketing department's getting excited about it. It isn't the sort no. of cloud-praising romantic comedy that, you know. It's okay, guys. That's yeah. what like, It's also no, not it's, like... It's, 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 or, the, or, the, or the 60s plus live in life to the fullest type. You know? Yeah. It's, it's kind of building on that it's it's a film that's like really just against the idea of uh cultural like cultural tourism yes the, the, which is what a lot of like art house offerings in that that do actually get a release that's there. hilarious that you say that because i was about to say it's also not the kind of like gentle uplift family life on the you know on the step or something like that like we're in we're in the in Mongolia, and here's how the farmers live. Picture of a cute kid with outstretched arms. And yeah. <laughs> like, you know. yeah, yeah, it's very much not yeah. that. But it's interesting what it has to say about identity and how it, you know, especially the idea of stories. And I think that's one of the recurring themes in the film about how the character is about I give you my stories, and he wants to reclaim it back because he realizes he's given a part of himself away, and how erratic that is. I think in a physical performance, it's a really interesting film. As you were saying outside when we left, like that that speaks to so much of the immigrant experience. Yeah. So I think, you know, we have a lot of refugee immigrant stories at the festival, but this does something very different 
to that and you know the way you can do that it's especially you know the citizenship scenes which Stephen mentioned earlier I think the absurdity of that is played up really well because oh, you know but I've also been that hilarious with Australia so uh, I, I could hark back to kind of some of those remember, meetings yeah. which is uh, right. quite funny this movie you, is you, actually if you forget how anti-Semitic the, um, the international like I mean uh, those lyrics the impure the Marseille, and that yeah. was like my golly I forgot I about forgot, you, can I why the, you can see why the National Front always is singing the you know the Marseille I mean, yeah yeah, yeah. It, I think um we should point out how funny this film is. I thought it was hilarious at times, yeah, and but um, there were a few moments where um, I saw it separately from Chanel, and she's always my partner in laughing at parts in the movie that no one else realizes are funny. There's a uh, I've laughed at a few films. Yeah, yeah, that's true. There's this militaristic Israeli <laughs> character yeah. who oh, <laughs> who gets a rise out of confronting people with his macho Israeli <laughs> military guyness. A great scene funny. where he's running through the uh, subway. Uh, it's so uh, funny, uh, mumbling the and national anthem yeah, right in people's faces. I was laughing at that, and the, the state theater was silent. And then again, Chanel saw it separately to me and laughed at it. And the state theatre was silent. I think I, I had to watch this that's, movie. That's something yeah. that's really interesting to me about film festivals is people wanting to have the correct reaction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. there's no cues to I, laugh. I, I, yeah. I think that's part of it where I feel it's more a reflection on the audience and who feel that is it appropriate to laugh at this or not? Yeah. Oh my God, am I being politically incorrect? Yeah. <laughs> this scene? Am, I being, am I being anti-Semitic? I mean, we were, we were talking earlier about the Nightingale reaction and uh, yeah. how they're just like, as, as soon, if somebody... If somebody yells something mid-screening at a film festival, you're going to remember, or at a, just a film screening, you're going to remember that for the rest of your life. What, yeah. what was it that the person yelled at? Well, she said, because I haven't seen that. She said yet. something like, "I am not watching this." Mm. And then she said, "She's already been raped." Yes. And then uh, there was something else she said as she was uh, she, she, leaving. She held an expletive at the film at, you, at the end. You had another story, right? Right. Which about somebody screening something? And oh, um, it. oh no, that's so goddamn messed up. Wait, wait the, the Venice story. The Ven- oh yeah, jeez. I, I don't remember like what that. Oh, just the, like apparently guy a guy was like cheering at violence against Aboriginal people and women. Like, yeah, there was there was actually there was a weird laughter at um, like shut up woman or something later in the film. A guy behind us at the Ritz like. Not only did he laugh at that, which, given the context, it should be yes, obvious that I that wasn't being yes. played for laughs. Yeah. But he did this weird laugh that, like, really high pitched and just kept going. Like and that anyway, one. that's what film festivals are all about. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> one of the best screenings I've ever been it's to is being challenged, shaken <laughs> out of your passivity. Yeah. 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 No, it's about acceptance, tolerance, yeah. and all the wonderful mushy things. Um, what, what, one of the best screenings I've ever been to is Sasami Man because it was an entire theater of people who got the film and loved it and were laughing the whole way through. One of the uh, one of the great feuds of film. film Fight Club is uh, Glenn versus everybody about Film Fight Club. Sorry, That's that was a strange uh, Freudian <laughs> <Wow>. slip. No, <laughs> I, I Glenn, see. Well, <laughs> Glenn versus everybody about Swiss Army Man. Oh wow, I, I didn't see Swiss Army Man. So well, I recommend that you maintain that situation. Oh <laughs> no, it's, it was the best film of 2016 Sydney Film it was, Festival. It was actually one of the worst <laughs> films probably ever to play <laughs> in competition Absolutely at Sydney Film Fest. Not. Uh, all time, all time top fifty, easy. Oh God! Um, what? So what? Easy, easy. Can you, can you go through the rest of the fifty? <laughs> just to, uh, just to save yourself. Yeah. Uh, well, one Chris and I saw today, which we'll be talking about next week, may actually be in that list. Really? Uh, possibly. Have you liked it that much? Swiss Army Man with that. Uh, yeah, we, we, we're tiptoeing around because okay. we can't. We're not sure if we can talk about this, but there is a film screening. It's Parasite by Bong Joon Ho. We'll get into this more 
probably multiple episodes multiple, to come. Multiple, multiple episodes. It's to come. coming. It's coming to. If you miss it at the festival, it's coming to regular cinemas very soon. Which is which now, is right. just unprecedented. Yeah, feels. that's right. I mean, they're not unprecedented because there are a lot of a lot of films will get concur- like Korean films will get yeah. concurrent releases a lot of the time. I, I think what we a, might say about Okja getting a Netflix release actually, you know, made sure that a lot of people watched it and they realized Bong Joon Ho was a good mm. talent. It may not be the best film, but it did well. It's for strange. His, yeah. It's kind of uh, publicity. I, it's strange. Yeah. I was thinking. Uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I for winning the Palm Door. I don't think this one is particularly, you know, stronger than something like Mother or Memories of Murder. I think Bong Joon Ho has just reached that height after making a few English language films mm. that he's politically acceptable to win a big prize like that. I, I mean, know. there's also the element. It's a great of, film. Don't get me there's wrong. also the element of giving a prize so that they work in their native language. Yeah, like keep doing it, and yeah. you know. By yeah. all means, because I mean, he's like you know his his Korean films are just incredible. That's right. The 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 run from Memories of Murder to the host to Mother is pretty pretty special. This is up there. Yeah. yeah. So I, yeah, question. Get excited. He got a hero's welcome when he got back to Korea. So yeah, and the film's doing amazing business over there, breaking records. So good for Bong Joon Ho. He deserves commercial it. and artistic success. That's exactly, what we make yeah. movies for. Speak, yeah, the rare of- double. <laughs> Speaking of Khan and commercial artistic success, our next film is one we discussed last time. However, um, Ian, we haven't got your take on it, and that is Pedro Almodovar's Pain and Glory. Almodovar. Another- we have what, to what, do what something that? about We keep saying Almodovar, <laughs> and there is no mold <laughs> in Pedro. That's true, but not this one. I also heard Petra, which was like... I did not say that. I did not say Petra. Ian, save me. My take on Pain and Glory? Yes, please. Um, I thought it was fine. I'm uh, I'm not the biggest Almodovar fan. Uh, I mean, I, I do enjoy his films when when I see them, and uh, I kind of nodded off in the middle. Not the film's fault, just my general fatigue. It at happens in festivals. Yeah, I was only I was only like two days in, but maybe just didn't get some sleep. Um, I found it very wise, moving, all those things. Maybe thought it was a like it's. I saw it actually uh, the evening after the souvenir, which, uh, as many people have noted, uh, have they both share a lot of. Well, yeah, we, it was great programming by the festival because I saw them on the Saturday, meaning I got to do the filmmaker <coughs> autobiography heroine movie double bill. <laughs> yeah. too. But uh, the souvenir, yeah, I've, I've seen you have some thoughts on that. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought it was, I, I initially really quite liked it i didn't i felt maybe a bit distant from it which is by design because it is you know a film that's i think sort of it it is well first of all the other big theme is autobiographical films i think we're going to talk about uh maybe one in a moment our time uh and this one i thought the treatment of autobiograph like the filmmaker's autobiography the souvenir that is um was maybe just a bit more trickier and more interesting than the kind of more classical way that Almodovar goes back and forth in time. Uh, so it's basically the souvenir plays out in linear time. It's kind of, it, it does, every scene does have this sort of foggy quality to it because mm. it like begins, you know, uh, with mid conversation or just, you know, without a lot of context. And it just gives this kind of quality of, uh, just watching a memory as it plays out. The, yeah, the, the the moments that you remember are so personal to you. Yeah, it's not, it's but not, also drained yeah. of drained of like a lot of passion too, and that's also quite deliberate, mm. which is maybe like why I think I and maybe some other people I talked to had a kind of delayed response to the, the overall arc that that character experiences. I do agree with that. It does definitely feel like a person looking back on 
themselves and not feeling like that person anymore. Yeah, just not not feeling any of the associated passion that they, they might have felt in in the moment. Which is why I think it would explain some of the sort of you know surreal aspects of how you would remember some of those uh, streams of consciousness memories. And I love how it drifted into and out of that. So I think it's an interesting way of framing it. It, it made the film more interesting structurally than otherwise it would have been, because otherwise it's quite a linear narrative and mm. you don't you don't see that but the play that kind of thing and especially in you know sometimes you remember yourself in much more interesting ways than you were yeah. actually there so you know when you remember back you think oh no this was this happened to me rather than something mm. where you were a part of when that happened I, I thought it's treatment of um uh, of like the addiction subplot and the fact that uh, you know it, it was her it was her wealth and his wealth as well that was keeping it going that you know she 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 wasn't in the position to walk out because her her very comfortable privileged living was was funding it at the same time and I and at, to some extent like just funded it until the it was in and until it ran out yeah. But, yeah it's um it's one of the issues I have with the film which is also kind of its strength is that the the kind of withdrawn approach to it um is applied to a very a narrative which. It's it's about a person's naivety, so it's a trajectory that really has a foregone conclusion. Mm. So the being in this kind of really um, almost like airless vacuum, it's it's actually very funny that we haven't mentioned anything about the plot so far because <laughs> it it's almost the the actual autobiography is kind of secondary to just how it's like how she's just like mm. sculpting it, I guess, and mm. you know, and she's almost just use the the only thing she really uses to give that sense of watching a memory is. You know these like certain ellipses, like the sense of time between mm. s- certain scenes, and, and the little handheld flickery. Yeah, and just and just moments. like the level of distance and proximity you feel from the characters at any given time. Mm. Like there's certain scenes that play out in a very like you know like this romantic music swelling, and then other scenes it's just yeah. you know they're it, in the corner of the frame. I really distant. like yeah those kind of distant compositions and just the general atmosphere. I think do a good job at <laughs> capturing the 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 strange again like kind of vacuum like environment of, of the wealth mm, yeah like a lack of passion exactly yeah so that is pen and glory and the souvenir pen and glory is screening on saturday the 15th at 8 30 at the orpheum and tuesday at 805 at denzel Keys. whereas the souvenir is screening on the 14th this friday at 6 15 at the hayden orpheum and on the 16th at 4 45 p.m at the rand grits the next film we're talking about is the mountain which we caught right before the nightingale on Sunday night, it is starring Ty Sheridan as a young man who has suffered some tragedy regarding his parents' situation in his life and uh, becomes under the care in some senses of a, of a lobotomist and a doctor in 1950s America played by Jeff Goldblum. What are the, separ- what are the two films we saw tonight, the other being The Nightingale, shot in 4-3 ratio? I liked a lot of the cinematography in this film, even if it didn't tie together, and that's the main issue with this film. None of it tied together. It was Dow. It didn't really go anywhere and remains one of my least favorite of the festival. Um, yeah, I was pretty down on it as well. And I'm, I was pretty big on his previous two films. Which I definitely preferred uh, Rick, oh, Alverson. Rick Alverson. Rick Alverson, yes. Yes, who's, uh, you know, uh, I, he made two films with um, Tim Heidecker, and Neil uh, Greg Turkington, aka Neil, Neil Hamburger, in his net Neil Hamburger persona. So he's been working with these kind of anti anti comedy uh, 
titans, I guess you could say. But and it it really makes you wonder how much of what was interesting about the filmmaking was the fusion of his aesthetics with anti comedy. Yes, he 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 had a strong kind of uh, prefer, like persona to play off with and create some friction. And in this case, he doesn't really have that because Jeff Goldblum is not really the focus of the film. He's, yeah kind of just you know doing his Goldblumisms in, in I, I, I thought of Jeff Goldblum he is they are Goldblumisms but I thought Jeff Goldblum was good he was good yes I I, I enjoyed him in, but um the main focus is Ty Sheridan who's deliberately this sort of blank but not in a really interesting way that's right the- I think my main problem is that everything that this film is saying about like American hucksterism and these kind of like you know quack medicine types are it, it it's it's all just built into the premise and it really coasts on yeah the the thema the, the themes of that premise. i agree i i've written in my notes rick alverson is asleep at the wheel <laughs> it, it's just basically the shtick of a, a totally blank ty sheridan yep. coasting through weird um weird compositions I, I mean i just there was a, there was a point where i just weird thought it, it had to be a kind of meta quality to it and it was just like the director was was the fraud in this right. case, and, <laughs> no, and the fact that so hush. the fact that it, the, that there is a vice me, a vice uh, media logo at the beginning does not help matters. Right. No, um, another vice also uh, financed another film, Judy and Punch, which we're going to talk Get about into. later. But regarding the mountain, what frustrated me, he's playing the role that Barry Keane played in Killing a Sacred Deer, a film which I absolutely despised a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and more significantly. The bits, uh, there are some great But that's a flourishes. much better performance as well. And, and there was depth there, there, to it. The there, thing about this character, yeah, Ty Sheridan here, there's, there's nothing to what he's doing. And what gets me more is they put the camera on him and Goldblum so much. Goldblum does use a lot of his charm and invert it for dramatic purposes. I do like that. However, the they, they throw them at the camera. They throw the amazing French actor, sorry, I can't remember his name, he does the, the dancing, whole, then, who's yeah. glorious. But they, they're hoping some of these images stick enough in your mind. And tonally, some of them are interesting, but tonally, whether it be the drive towards the end, whether it be um, Sheridan just sitting there, whether it be Goldblum looming over the entire camera, whether it be the amazing dancing sequences, none of them bear any real thematic relevance. To, uh, they, he hopes it will stick. And it does not. I mean, I think he's, yeah, I think he's just kind of being, like, mind being charitable, and I'll say that he's being just kind of intuitive with the iconographic associations of both that, you know, that sort of Norman Rockwell vision of America in the 50s, Mm. as well as the iconography of people like Denis Levant, Jeff Goldblum, Udo Kier is in it, very, like, you know, insignificantly. He he doesn't really affect the film in any dramatic level. Um, I mean, you could replace him with somebody else is what I mean. Uh, but yeah, I just didn't feel like it offered much. I think I just, I just felt like a, 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 I felt like a normie who wanted to be spoon fed. Yeah, I, I think points. it would have been a good conventional road movie. I think that's right. The story is actually pretty interesting. Hmm. Uh, you know, a guy going on the road with uh, a unethical doctor, hmm. you know, and touring mental hospitals. And as you say, that kind of like hucksterism and, you know, the Ty Sheridan really as, as the innocent seeing this person being praised, maybe entering into his downfall and just getting fed yeah. up with it. That's a, to me, that's a really interesting story. It's hmm. just that the presentation is so drained of passion. The only thing of interest really is the compositions. I do think the cinematography is really good. It is. Yeah, it, it is definitely like, it, it it's a it's a really actually I don't know I I I've, I thought that even after a while the, after the, a while the, it gets the, old the, because the it's, it's the same pretty... approach over and over again yeah but I do think there were 
a few really striking moments. But um, yeah, it gets old. But the way that Denis Levon comes in is just kind of like, he's so wacky and crazy. Let's just keep throwing yeah. in the crazy, screamy French guy. Could do, the, do the dance again. Giving a um, dance. We need something for another 20 minutes. Please just, just do your thing. And Why is this yeah. not a short film? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that is The Mountain. It. I will tell you what it is screening. I... What is it screening again? Do, do, do. It is screening... Not one of the peaks. It's not screening again. Um, there you go. Thank God. No, the it's, it's not that bad. It's just yeah. it's just like regular bad. It's just there. It's just there. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, didn't, it didn't peak our excitement. I, I, oh. I, I work as a Jeff Goldblum and... No, just just no Jeff. You, you, I, I think I probably no enjoyed Jeff. Jurassic World Oh my God. More. Uh, convey my regards if you know him personally. I didn't say Jurassic World. Was he in it? Uh, Jurassic he, World. Uh, in, a, in a moment, at the very end. He, the very he appeared to say, uh, uh, life finds a way, and that was it. Yeah, because oh, wow. he, <laughs> he is the 90s personified. The next thing we're talking about is our time. Oh, right. I'll be honest and say that uh, I, um, that I have not finished watching this film yet, but oh, okay. I've g- I've got the idea, I think. But I will I will finish it. It's this isn't a protest. I didn't I even just, I didn't even realize what we were going to be talking. About. I mean, I forgot that we were going to be talking. Yeah, about. I um, I just ran out of time, and you know, I, our, time okay, our time is too valuable. But yeah. how much how much of it was 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 there antipathy uh, antipathy in there, or were you, were yeah. you glad to stop watching it? Um, look, I was I was at the point where I I was definitely able mm. to see it through. It was it was really just a question of time. However, I had felt like I had passed the peak and was on the descent. I I have to admit, I this was a film I went into with very very low expectations. Uh, that uh, I'm not a huge fan of Carlos Regades, but I do think that all of his his films have there are there are moments that there's I, something that I won't every time. There's, there's and there and you know even his worst films. Like they are very striking, and I still remember scenes from them years on from seeing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also he did Silent Light, which was here in competition, I think, like ten years ago maybe, yep. and then also a very strange film called Post Tenebris Lux uh, from twenty twelve. I'm pretty sure yep. that um is pretty wild. And this one is, I mean, in addition to not being a huge fan of him, I did not when I read the premise and, and heard that he this stars is, in it that this was him performing. Uh, anxieties and drama of his open relationship uh, and it was three hours long I just kind of laughed and it just became this sort of meme in my mind as <laughs> as it was just perpetually rumored for for Cannes and then rejected yeah. and then played at Venice and then got terrible reviews so all these things were uh, you know I had this very negative uh, uh, this, this very like negative uh, image of it in my head and I have to say like from the, from the opening moment uh, that that scene with the children playing around this like sort of lake like uh, in his last two films his last two films but i i mean i was just immediately immersed in it and it was it it was done really really well there's i agree there's a scene at a symphony i think later on that's just uh just extremely beautiful where it just cuts away from an actual symphony to a kind of city symphony of sorts in mexico city and also a long long pan over a mosaic yes exactly yeah and there's another scene which is just attached to a plane as it lands and you hear a character's uh like internal monologue or a letter or something read over it um there's also i i didn't make it to the plane but i did see an incredible uh scene where the camera shifts deeper into a car mm. as oh that's yeah that's that's a good scene too right as as sort of in time and leading into a character's sexual fantasies 
I was. I mean, I, I thought I, those yeah, poetic I, flourishes are, are incredible in this film. Yeah, I, 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 I just found it even, even as the drama of it and his, him, him playing himself and his wife playing him, herself as well. Uh, just their, their their domestic domestic squabbles were, if not like interesting in themselves, just like placed in a context where they take on this kind of like grand sort of almost almost kind of cosmic significance and it's just like it's really swinging for the fences and being very earnest and dopey in a way that i kind of found endearing right and uh i just think it's one of the most like singular films at the festival it is definitely one of the most singular i'll I'll say i was really um you're probably gonna hate the ending i'll say but (laughs) okay i was really swept up in the slice of life kind of feeling earlier on Mm. um and the long lingering shots the way that he blocks for the camera is incredible. Mm. Oh, definitely. Right. Yeah. Just um, this uses this really, really wide landscape um, kind of composition style, which in, in some ways reminded me of Malik. But unlike Malik, it's very, um, very much choreographed around the camera. And very was, stable. And yeah. you know, he settles on landscapes rather than kind of just... Flourishes of impressionism. We've ticked yep. um, off our two patron saints, David yep. Lynch and Terence Malick. We, have, we haven't mentioned Lynch saints. yet. We haven't. Now we have. But, and that's um, enough. <laughs> but um, I didn't find the domestic stuff so interesting. Like, I think mm. the visual approach has got, that he has been developing has, I think, reached the highest point of sophistication so far here. Um, some of the compositions and the, you know, the way characters are arranged the frame arranged around the frame and divided up mm. by pieces of art on the wall um the the place that the camera will land at the end of a long scene and just linger yeah it's beautiful and i agree that it does elevate the drama to an extent mm. but i was starting to feel my patience tested like that the it's such a kind of mundane um by the book i i suppose the scenario is a little bit unusual that for a relationship drama it is, i mean it is it is like a dramatically thin kind of concept yeah and, but it, I, and, I, and there is like a lot of hubris in just assuming that you know your like own domestic uh you know relationship troubles are like deserve this kind of like scope yeah but i think I, I think it just kind of transcends it just by sheer bravado and just the just just the overall sincerity of it. I will. I will say the uh, epilogue of it is very literal in a way that almost made me laugh. But at the same time, being like almost like on the edge of laughter and kind of embarrassed at the same time is sort of part of the film. It's just this very like kind of nakedly confessional, and I think really beautiful film. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I regardless got the the final laugh. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm the cuck in this, in this right. scenario. <laughs> it was funny when they used in the subtitles early on, they say, oh, if only all cucks were like that. And just seeing the word <laughs> cuck, like it's like, did, did the subtitlers realize how loaded that is <laughs> you know, culturally? But anyway. So that culturally loaded film, our time is screening on it's about Friday. It's about like 4chan posting cattle ranches in Mexico. <laughs> on... <laughs> On Friday night at 8.05 at Dead New Opera Keys. Uh, the next film, um, let, let's do something non-controversial, not loaded. What's next? Oh, oh, uh, who's seen The Brink? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, talking of cocks, I think it's a yeah, perfect yeah, segue. Yeah, Steve Bannon. <laughs> yeah. Um, you didn't like it as much as I did. So no. actually, I'm interested to now hear your opinion, Chris. Bring it on. Okay, well, Steve Bannon makes a point in the film, which is, he says, Trump taught me that all press is good press. 
And I think ultimately this film doesn't do that much to challenge Steve Bannon. It's designed for a left-wing audience who it thinks, you know, will just hear, oh, Steve Bannon's trying to unite the right and be automatically horrified by that, as if that's enough. But it isn't. Steve Bannon's too good at media, um, I think, to get pinned down by that. He went in, obviously, knowing that this is a film project biased against him uh, and presuming it would work out in his favor. And I think he's right. I think that it's not enough to just put scary music over a montage of what he's been up to lately. Um, I think a lot of if you're on board with Steve Bannon, you could come away with this... um, you know, think, just being happy to hang out like with him. Broader problem in the sense that I don't think anything can harm Trump or Bannon because they're able to basically, you know, uh, flip anything which is against well, the narrative in their favor because they just say, "Look, all these people are out to get me, and you know, I'm well, the only messiah that you've got." Maybe. <laughs> well, the thing the thing about Bannon is um, that this film, rev- you know, reveals. I knew this about him already, but I think a lot of people going in probably wouldn't. Is that yeah. he's a super charming guy. He he isn't good looking as he talks yeah. about in the film. But he has a hell of a lot of charisma. Um, he's able to sway people. And just I think just putting the camera on him as he goes about his business is not going to do what the but, filmmakers but in, are in way, trying I, I to do. I think do. it's quite the opposite. I think it's interesting to know that you know these uh, supposedly populist leaders who everyone loves to hate are not actually demons. They're actually quite adept at doing their job. A, and they have this persona. skilled which, manipulator. Yeah, yeah. So I, th- I think, in a way, it's, it's more uh, mm-hmm. sort of inwardly insightful that you get to see that these people are more part of your midst than you realize. I guess so. I guess, Well, to me, I, I think a more interesting documentary would have gotten into what is he doing, you know, to manipulate what... Uh, it basically just shows him at his word... And he is really careful not to reveal anything oh, damaging. Yeah. He's very clever. He's very clever. And if yeah. anything, actually, uh, you know, the left is, I don't know if there is a left anymore in any kind of political context left. There is. Uh, yeah, sure. Glenn. But yeah, I mean, you know, but it's, it's just that, you know, I think beyond that, it's interesting to see. Uh, we, we like to paint these broad brush pictures around Bannon or Trump or whatever, and that they're evil people. But I think what this documentary sort of gets at, and which is more interesting, is that he's able to do it in a way which is not uh, as, you know, blaringly Blairite as people make it out to be. You know, it's not as obvious. It is more in the subtle nuances of how he interacts with people. He makes a very good, personable individual. Like, you know, you would love to hang out with him and grab coffee. He's much more insidious because he's not the boogeyman. Nobody um, is, yeah. Yeah, I just don't think that um, even the mechanics of how he's going about what he's doing aren't really explored. It just felt very face value to me. Okay, so that is The Brink. It is screening. I'm just going to bring it up. The Steve Bannon documentary. Ah, where is it? Does anyone know what it's... Sometimes. I see what you're doing. It's interesting because there was screening on... It's not screening again. There we go. Oh, can I bring something that ties it back to some of the films that some of the directors here... Ten years ago, I'm just reading from an article, Bannon saw the distribution of independent films released by Wellspring Media, a company that supported a wide range of international cinema, as well as gay-themed and other transgressive titles. So uh, Bannon Bannon and Wellspring Media, which uh, released films by Ho Sha Shen and Claire Denis and uh, Wait, a bunch of other places. And they, I think he was just trying to release his own propaganda. Yeah, because they show at the beginning of the film, they show a... Um, a film that he made which looks pretty bad and he, which he's talking about but man they released yeah. was this just like some tax write-off the producers thing like releasing who associate movies when you're steve bannon uh, i don't know i just i just suddenly remembered that headline, that's pretty so. interesting 
Uh, we're going to be talking about more films in a moment, but the one uh, we actually haven't seen, which we should note, is the other big story of the festival is the Adam Goods documentary, The Final Quarter. Notably, the Melbourne International Film Festival also opening with a documentary about Adam Goods. Um, there was quite a reception to this at the State Theatre and also the AFL in the hours immediately prior to the premiere at the Sydney Film Festival released an unreserved apology to the handling of the controversy regarding Adam Goods, who has since retired from the Sydney Swans some years ago. So this is certainly one of the big talking points. I meant to see the documentary. Uh, yeah, uh, that is We'll, we'll be watching that very closely and we certainly will be seeing the documentary hopefully when it comes to MIF and if, not, if it does not get a general release here as well the next one we are talking about is Reason yeah Reason I, I saw this on Sunday for our documentary about the rise of right wing fascism in India or I like to call it the Modi government essentially uh, so it's interesting to because you know a lot of people just don't realise uh, the dynamics of how the left has systematically been wiped out in India completely there is no left opposition in India right now as we talk about it and the populist rising from a grassroots level is fascinating to think about it I think Anand Patwardhan who's been making movies against the status quo for a long time about three decades now systematically about caste issues class issues basically the only kind of bastion of the left in India left uh, you know India left in the, in the country right now, which is fascinating because, you know, Modi has a lot of soft power and, you know, we get to see the kind of image he likes to portray for the West. But what this documentary does is a great primer from a grassroots level of how these organizations have been set up to brainwash people into believing and rewriting the history of the Indian subcontinent in a way that suits the right-wing agenda, which is fascinating. Think about it. So you have been telling state-based narratives around uh, the killing of Mahatma Gandhi, which sued the right-wing narratives and how Islamophobia and xenophobia are on the rise, basically funded on grassroots levels by organizations which are then funded by the state, which is a fascinating link-up that leads back to a government-level conspiracy on a grand scale. It's a fascinating documentary for hours. Uh, well worth your time if you can spare it. But yeah, the lack of reason in the country. And that is screening on Wednesday night so tonight oh it's already screened sorry uh <laughs> you uh will not be able to catch it at the festival but, bum, bum, uh, bum, but screening. it's on youtube it, it, it is on youtube in 16 parts yeah i would definitely recommend to watch it Ofi- an official upload it's not even piracy yeah. so okay. there you go because he's never going to get a release in india because the government never allowed so he just uploaded it on youtube himself okay the next film we're talking about is one we all caught last night together it might be the only film we've all seen together and that is the whistlers it was a late edition from khan as it played as part of the khan critics week it is no a, it played in the main competition sorry main, main competition excuse me it is a romanian drama comedy thriller bit of a genre mashup i'm very reticent to describe the pod of this because it is one of the only films not the only film we've seen at this festival where we are dropped in in the middle but there are a lot of allusions to classic certainly hitchcock um rafiki i picked up um a lot of the early and good guy Ritchie films and yeah Ian, <laughs> what did we think of, psycho and yeah yes and psycho very blatantly what did we think of the whistlers it was fine ian just made a comment um when we were talking about it earlier that uh he um is notoriously bad at following intricate plots and so am i i was actually surprised that i basically even with festival fatigue basically understood what was going on i think in this yeah, movie. i'm I, I so think, bad with heist movies i think that little preamble is just you know it, it's deliberately convoluted just it to is. kind of place you in a world where people like not even the participants really know what's going on a lot of the time but yeah um i, I it's it's cold um it's got a complicated plot I don't I think th- what, this is this is also the uh should mention it's by uh, Cornelio uh, Paramboy, Paramboy, yeah. uh who made 
a bunch of very kind of droll minimalist films and this like if you've seen any of his films like and the moment it starts you just know that he's obviously trying to challenge himself hmm. with with like all these very classic noir elements and yeah you know it's very dialogue to bring heavy. it to something more conventionally cinematic yeah than what he usually it, does it, it even kind of feels like prestige tv in a way uh, actually like yeah it, uh, it, almost in a kind of like tongue-in-cheek way because yeah his his films are again just very 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 small scale um yeah i, I quite enjoyed it a bit it like that's that's exactly on. it you quite enjoy it a bit yeah exactly it's <laughs> it, it is just one of those you know j- just sort of like little souffle things that it's you like, see in the middle of if, festival fatigue it'll probably get a release i think yeah because it's quite commercial yeah it's it's about a gang you know coming together to commit you know a heist sort of and And double crosses and the title refers to the whistling technique that they use to communicate because cell phones it's tricky to communicate on cell phones which ties back in and it ties back into the searches yes very very well which also blatantly references i actually quite like the allusions to um, classic cinema and there's not so much the blatant ones but the ones that try to riff on the classic idea of the whether it be the femme fatale which was handled mm. I think better than classic cinema but it's not always to such a great extent um, a number of the other characters the one shootout sequence is is gold I think it was my favourite in the film mm. it mixed a lot of what we would expect from modern dramas and modern technical proficiency with um, the classic western style and certainly there is a roof off of i'm going to say the good the bad and the ugly but any number of westerns where there is a standoff at one stage of the film which i think was very well handled um one major detraction to this and we we're going to talk about this later as mentioned in the podcast there is a lot of films at this festival which deals with the issue of assault and violence and i think well we've talked about how it is significant that with the nightingale it was extremely relevant to either the story they were trying to tell or the arc that was befitting certain characters or the themes that Jennifer Kent or other directors are going for. In this film, there is one particular character who's a very violent character. They establish purely in his interactions with everyone that he is an indiscriminate violent character. There's an additional sequence where he assaults the main female character in the film uh, with the use of a gun. And both those sequences, and both separately... The pool scene. Estab- I'm about to get to that. Mm. Both those sequences establish that this person is a terrible human being. However, there is an additional sequence where, which is very much extraneous to the plot and didn't need to be included, um, where he assaults her quite graphically and repeatedly in a pool. Now, this served, I don't believe, any purpose to the film. I don't believe it taught us anything new about the characters. And I, my feeling is that when these sorts of sequences are included and are absolutely extraneous to the plot and either character or plot developments, then they, uh, the emphasis is not so much on the consequence but on the violence. And that is a big problem for me. I think the sequence shouldn't have been included. I think it's something that filmmakers and today uh, should be more conscious of and certainly have been getting a lot more conscious of as public awareness and also the discussions in the press um, have proliferated on these issues. However, I think this is a film that faulted greatly in this regard by the inclusion of that scene. I think there are other examples, I think more serious examples of this at the Sydney Film Festival this year, which we will go on to discuss. So Ian will have to leave us soon, but were there any films that you... Oh, uh, I think the only the only one I really wanted to shout out was uh, Ray and Liz, which is uh, the photographer Richard Billingham has... It's his debut after, and he's based it on... Well, I mean, he's it's based on a... It was previously a photo a book of photographs um 
that were based on his life in government housing in England. Um, it's very bleak. It's very uh, it's very stylized. It kind of like reminded me a lot of like Terence Davies uh, films, but like much grimier. Um, it's really impressive. There are things about it that you know. I mean, just regarding regarding just the attitude towards the characters is you know maybe a little tenuous and something i'm kind of puzzling over but doesn't really detract from the experience of it as in it's a kind of negative or scathing depiction um it 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 is very like unsparing towards his parents in the film right in a way that is you know it's it's not really like a character driven film it is more of just like this kind of aesthetic object that is sort of um well presumably very faithful to like the looking through a photograph a book of photographs Mm. um but uh yeah it's just you know sometimes you just got to wonder what the point of all the uh you know uh working class miserabilism (laughs) in festivals amounts to all right so that is the whistlers is playing on saturday the 15th of june at 6 30 p.m at dente newtown and ray and liz is screening on Sunday the 16th of June at Denny Opera Keys at 12.05 I'll try and catch it. Um, I know uh, you have to pop out, so thank you so much for joining us on the show. No, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. Thank you, everyone. I'll take you back to talk more, either film festival, just film more generally. Yeah. And go go visit uh, Film Club in Darlinghurst. Film Club is actually amazing. Everyone should go. Yep. If you like movies. The next film we're talking about is Hail Satan, the only film at the festival, maybe the festival ever, to feature a question mark in the title. It is about the Satanic Temple, a group which I think it's Netflix and Sabrina the Teenage Witch have gotten quite some trouble in for using some of their iconography. It is about this group who statedly in the documentary are misunderstood and uh, about religious pluralism and pluralism more generally and partly about their efforts to, as there are Ten Commandments um, on in, by statue form at certain state bodies, get their... Um, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the goat throne <laughs> guard, but basically Bahamas? place... Oh, that's it. Yep. Place this individual um, next to the Ten Commandments. The argument is, look, um, if you're going to have it up, we may as well have ours too and let the Jews and the Christians and the Hindus and everyone else have theirs as well. Um, I liked the unpacking of this organization because I don't know quite a great deal about them. I think it uh, went pretty quickly over some of the maybe more critical aspects. Certainly there is a sequence in the film where to discuss a what a breakaway of the organization and uh, i think that was handled quite quickly i would like to more on that i'd also like have like more of a breakdown to what extent uh this group are um about specifically about religious pluralism or else or as uh, statedly from one of the main activists uh trolls and how these dynamics uh played into each other certainly i think their trolling of i think it was a state governor was incredibly funny. I think their approach throughout the court is uh, was is quite as interesting legalistically as well as it is entertaining. Um, and I got to say, this festival screening of this was one of the funnest that I've attended because there were a number of lines at event cinemas, and you know, you would ask Hell Satan, Hell Satan, Hell Satan, just to make sure you're in the right line. So <laughs> it was a pretty great environment. I did really enjoy that. Uh, yeah, so that is Hell Satan. It is screening. I think it's again on. I'll just check. It is screening again on Thursday night at 8.30 p.m. The next film we are talking about... Actually, before we, I, before I forget, um, 
Just to note, uh, I Am Mother is actually not in cinemas now. It is getting a release in July. It's in so it's it's it's, it's on Netflix in Australia now. It'll as I mentioned last week, it'll be on a general release in Australian cinemas next month. Uh, thanks, Sean, listener, for pointing that out. Hey, Sean, hope you enjoy um, your wonderful trip. The next film we're talking about is one of the two Turkish films which is playing at the festival, which is The Tale of Three Sisters. All right, so Tale of Three Sisters. Um, I, I, I enjoy this film. I think it's okay. So it, it, it's very much about it's, a, it's, a, it's a very much a portrait of village life, but it mixes sort of comedic and tragic life. But it, it's very much about the story of three sisters. So sort of similar to the sort of the Chekhovian sort of the dynamics of of, yeah. three, of three sisters trying to get autonomy. But we're talking about um, three women that are in a, an area where there's limited education and that struggle to actually and gain the, that sort of yeah and the hope is to get out of the village and get into, us the, town, into yeah. the town where there's all these opportunities yeah. um one of the sisters previously had that space and is mm. now returned mm. because she had a mm. child out of wedlock yeah. um another uh the sister who's now who been married off into someone in the town comes back for a while and and old conflicts reemerge and meanwhile the uh sister who um, had the illegitimate child has married a idiot farmer yes. who oh, ruins everything. Shepherd, yes. Sorry, idiot, an idiot, idiot shepherd, shepherd yeah. who yeah. ruins everything yeah, who's, repeatedly. Yeah, so it was a, quite a comic, but yeah, like, there's a tragic dimension to him as well. I mean, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it starts with with him actually as a shepherd, and he actually is, um, doesn't realize that he's in the dark, and he actually urinates on a grave. And being highly superstitious um, yep. Turkish, he's really concerned about the sort of you know, how this all goes for his life. Yep. And it, it is a little bit about the sort of the, the smallness of village life and how how the ability to be able to elude that, and particularly and and, and both of the Turkish films that that that, that are at the festival today are focusing on on that dimension of. And it is is a particular, you know, struggle of how how do females escape patriarchal oppression when when it comes to this situation of when your role is very much enforced and this this thing is about the the three women and their different strategies to try and break out of mm. of those sort of defined roles. Yeah, I I enjoyed it, but I I think not maybe not as much as you. I found it, um, I guess a little bit safe. Like I I feel like I understood. Um, like maybe I feel I just feel like it doesn't go far enough. It's not a particularly hard-hitting film dramatically. Um, I'm not sure I really have much to say about this one, to be honest. I, I think it very much felt like a um, the uh, maybe it's being a bit harsh to call it festival filler, but it's one of those films that it has the anthropological kind of element to it. Um, it does have it, it isn't just filler there is some interest to the clashes between the sisters and the situation with the um because the as you say the the shepherd is su- is a tragic figure mm. because w- when things seem like they he might be able to influence you know create favorable circumstances for himself he still manages mm. to to ruin things, yeah. he, he just can't. He, he has a lot of built-up resentment and anger, and just, yeah, and he just can't yeah. um, get a hold of himself. Really, um, I think yeah, the, the characterization was strong. I thought I thought it was a pretty solid film. And I, I actually really liked the fact that it didn't go for the over dramatic, over wrought dramatic, and the, of the tension between the the masculine patriarchal figure and mm. the daughters. And whilst he's you know the the the, the, the masculine figure is the the, the dominant figure, and mm. you have the, the village elders and that. Um, the, the way that he plays out, I mean, his own lack, lack of education himself. Mm. And I just thought that the way that... It, but yeah, as I said, it probably... 
would have been there's a lot of interesting things in the background that would have been interesting to probe but i just thought yeah that's it's it, the, the scope is uh, i think like fairly nicely contained to five characters really mm-hmm. and a couple of side side characters um yeah the the I don't have too much to say about it, as I said <laughs> before, is, but uh, it's it's definitely a solid piece of filmmaking. Yeah, and I'm also the, the other Turkish film, Civil. I mean, we talked oh, about I've Whistler. seen that on Saturday. I'm really keen. Yeah. I mean, I'm considering catching that. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. also... I mean, uh, there's been a lot of Turkish films recently about you know, the lack of feminine autonomy. I think uh, Mustangs we had a couple of years ago, which yeah. actually won the audience film. Uh, but if you go back to Winter Sleep has a, a similar... I and mean, that is probably is the great Turkish film of the last decade. But it does seem to be that there are a lot of films focusing on Mm. On rural Turkey and the the daily life, and just the, the powerlessness, where it is much more predominant because of lack of it, opportunity for education. Mm. So that is Taylor Three Sisters. Um, it is not screening at the festival, but I think it may be available online, iTunes, elsewhere. It seems like a kind of film that might actually get a small release. Maybe not, but maybe there's oh, a, there, there, possibly there is a Turkish film festival. Maybe it'll also pop up. Ah, uh, yes, that is coming up later in the year. Um, maybe it will. In our last section of the show, we are talking... We've talked about some of our favourite films of the festival, but it is incumbent on the past to talk about some of the least favourite films and ones that um, you should perhaps avoid or not see. What, uh, Stephen, may I start with you? What are some of your... We talked about highlights. What are some of your lowlights of this year's Sydney Film Festival? Okay, well, I, I, feel, I feel a little unfair. It's always hard. Cause it, there, are, there are some merits in this, but I just think it's the wrong... was the, the wrong environment... Uh, for Walden, uh, it was a film that was shown late in the day. Uh, I think it was on the Friday. Uh, so those people that had sat through seven and a half hours of Satan Tango and then went and saw Walden, I'm not sure many of them would have stayed awake. And I struggled yeah. to, to, to to maintain, you know, to, to 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 shake off Morpheus in that period. It was a, it's a, it, I don't know that it was meant to be a film that was meant to Look, be watched in one thing, and that it wasn't. I, I, think, I think it's actually unfair. Yeah, some of this criticism. I, I think the Sydney Film Festival keeps making this really strange decision of programming video art in a cinema, and you sit down and watch it when it was not designed. They did this last year with the Bare Necessities or whatever it was, the Pure Necessity, and there was another the Bare Pure Necessity. Right, mm. there was another film, or there are a few others that were the video book. that were video art. No, the image book is still image book is art. Image come on, the image book is video video art ish, but no, but it's still designed and works as a film you sit down and watch yeah, in, yeah. in the cinema and it guides you through from a beginning to an ending. Whereas a lot of these things are meant to be, I think, just seen at random intervals playing on a wall and you can watch for as, as long as you want or come back to it later. Yeah. As an art gallery installation, um, I, I, it's not doing any favor to these works no. to program them in a cinema. Why aren't they just you know, setting up a section in the hub with headphones for you to watch these films maybe? Actually, yeah, that, that would be a good way to do it. Put them yeah. on the wall. It reminds me of the Cape Blanchett film that screened, which is actually already screening at the New South Wales Art Gallery yeah, in several Man- segments. Yeah. Manifesto? Or? Manifesto, yeah. 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 Which, yeah. Was, which was great to see at the, at the Art Gallery Yes, itself. it was. But, yeah. yeah. I, I, I could digest it. I could watch a couple, yeah. um, go, go to the go, Great Cafe, go see, go, come back go see my yeah. favourite Degas, and then go back. Hmm. Yeah. I said, yeah, I definitely would agree with that. I mean, so, it, it did have some really lovely pans, and you could, uh, you could draw into it for like 20 minutes, but there was actually nothing to sort of focus the action. And... Most interesting, and then the, but the last twenty minutes is quite interesting when it actually goes to the Brazil and Brazilian Amazon, and there's actual people and there's movement. So this is this is tracking the so it's, logs. It's, it's, it's a continuation it's of long tracking shots. It's just a continuation of twelve of twelve tracking shots, and yeah. and so what, it's a continuation it? of the, the logs from an Austrian forest, I believe it is, yeah. across Europe, 
<laughs> and the journey all the way across. the existential yes. journey of a log yeah and i think conceptually that sounds great just, mm. yeah just mm. about logs and wood. Yeah. all right so that is my heavy wooden heart um so that is what time is i'll look up the time that's screening uh do 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 inking yeah because we've really sold you on it now haven't we if you feel like getting i had the movement of a log in that if you feel like getting up on saturday morning and going to circular key it's playing at 10 a.m at Keys. it might be the sort of thing in the morning when you are fresh that i mean i just Hey, fresh yeah, and daisy, it's, 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 and I want to see a yeah. log journey today. This is exactly what I want to do. <laughs> it's just at the end of a day, of a long day when you... Mm. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll, we'll log that one. All right, so I logged next- off. Ooh. I logged off. Oh, <laughs> Sorry, that's a bit of a bad part. You just chipped in with that one there. So uh, next one we're talking about, Chris, um, do you have one to nominate? I think the absolute worst film of the festival... Uh, <sighs> There've been there've been some really bad ones. There's another really bad one I want to talk about in a moment. Um, but the absolute worst of the fest has to be Slam. Uh, Slam is um, sold, or is you, as having something to do with the Bankstown Poetry Slam and a particularly uh, one particular politically engaged poet. But it's actually about uh, this boring guy moping around after he, after she disappears. Um, it's made in this a superficially arty style where everything's slowed down and if the general slow pace of the film um, isn't enough it tries to underline important moments in slow motion um, this film has the poisonous combination of extreme extreme seriousness of intent and of style everything's completely dour um, I was surprised to learn that the director has previously made films in India and France and has only recently moved to Australia because, oh God, does this feel like in the worst possible ways a stereotypical Australian film. Like this is a serious drama and everyone's really serious and it's just lacking all vigor or life. This film barely has a pulse. Um, Anyway, so it's the biggest compliment for most Australian films, actually. (laughs) Thank you, Chris. (laughs) So it's the the poisonous combination of that uh, extreme seriousness and just ludicrousness in the plot. In the in order to make a statement about um, racist against racism against Muslims in Australia, which should be a pretty easy thing to write a plot about, this director makes incredible leaps. Um, it's a story where a the main character is meant to be a guy who's turned his back on his heritage, and uh, while his sisters, the really politically engaged person he's tri- essentially wants to live the conventional life like any white person in Australia would um, but somehow he ends up getting arrested in connection with a crime that there's no evidence that it's actually been committed when the media drums up a controversy about the his disappeared sister leaving to join ISIS I would think that someone would put the brakes on this even in a um, in the heightened political atmosphere that the director attempts to create of fears about ISIS. Um, But no, this guy gets arrested by a SWAT team in front of a bunch of media. And when has this ever happened in Sydney? It it, it has no relation to Australian life. It has no relation to the real ways that racism expresses itself in, uh, in Australia. And it's so tonally all over the place. After hours of this extreme self-seriousness about things that would never, ever, ever happen, it ends in this ex- uh, this burst of exploitation schlock, uh, like a 70s cheap grindhouse movie. 
it's just so 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 bad I, I can barely believe it i would say actually say that this film look it it's it's for a very low budget production it's well shot um the lead the lead actress is good but really I, i'm searching for something good to say i would say this is a film without redeeming features well, clearly, you've got to see it now, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so, Slam is screening this weekend. Uh, it's Go great. watch it. It's premiering this weekend. It's premiering Saturday the 15th of June okay, at well, 2 or 5 p.m. at the oh State God, I can't just stop. I can't stop hating on this movie. It's The disappeared woman sounds interesting. So instead of making a movie about her and the world of the Bankstown Poetry Slam, which I bet most of the people who went to see this movie w- went in because of the interest in that, we spend this time on the, the world's most boring man... <laughs> And his boring family and boring friends. Played by Adam Buckery from Omar, which is a fascinating film. Great Great movie. Great Great movie. movie. Right. But I just... haven't seen him anything since then. So, I I don't know, Chris. Maybe (laughs) making it sound more interesting than it is. I just don't understand why you wouldn't make the film about the politically engaged Muslim poet in Sydney. Like, that's, that's interesting. This I isn't. think you should have watched the film that he made rather than wanting him to make another film which he didn't make. I did watch the film that he made and all, you know... All I can do is imagine better ones because <laughs> everything is wanting. Or go to the Bagstown Poetry Slam, which is actually really good. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a good environment. Um and the other times it There's is no screening. poetry in this movie. There's like one poem that's There's no poetry. Repeated. There's one poem that you hear like four times. Dear me. Okay. All right. The, Clearly, the, the, guys, the, you've got to go and watch it now because we've sold it so well. We've done a brilliant job. Actually, that's Chris, as as a what you would call a you know, an you know, uh a. Dissenting review. Yeah. This did much better for the film publicity than any. I think most of our listeners would be right, excited. Then fine, go, go out and, watch and this see one. Slam get slammed at Sunday at four p.m. Something because you're the powerhouse, or Sunday seven fifteen p.m. at the Ritz and Randwick. That is the poetry slam movie called Slam Without oh, Slam that's Poetry. Not the poetry <laughs> slam. <laughs> that's what I'm, yes, that's, yes, I'm that's, getting to that. I'm that's getting to that. Chris. Selling it us. I'm getting to that. Also Saturday at the State. After and, I said that, I said that first. And okay. there is a poetry uh, slam at the Hub after I that I want to go to. Breaths. That I want to see. I'm, okay, I'm there we go. Myself. Something we want to see. Good. That I want to see. All right, so that is Slam for us. It's, it's hard to follow that up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is a film I can only say. I can only think of more bad things about it. How do you, how do you go? I won't be able to top it. But, uh, Virat. Look, initially I was going to go with my favorite, uh, you know, actor of all time, Dave Patel and The Wedding Guest, which was pretty bad. But then I thought I'd try to not play to my stereotype and try to pick something different. So, Ghost and Anthology, which I saw on the first night of the festival, was. Absolutely horrid. We needed a couple of strong drinks after this, and we got them. Yeah, we, we had some really warm mulled wine right across the road at Blackbird, which I'm more happy to talk about because I think that's more interesting than the actual film that we saw, unfortunately. God, uh, this is bad. And this was preceded so by a short, which was also equally bad. Hugh Bow, who made Elephant Sitting Still, his last short premiered as a double feature with Ellen Ghost Town Anthology. And I think that should have been a giveaway for me that I was having a horrible night and... I did. What's the problem with this film is, much like Chris and his perception of this other film that I'm not going to talk about, uh, <laughs> I think with Ghost and Anthology, uh, the film ended after eight or ten minutes and it didn't know what to do after that. And it just kept on going and going and going. And you just waited for something to happen and nothing interesting happened. And when things eventually happened in the climax or near the climax, they were tackled in such a drab, cheesy way with such on-the-nose heavy symbolism that you just thought just 
And this film has interesting things to say about politics and, you know, how little ghost towns are being left in the waste, but it doesn't do them any justice. It doesn't tackle any of these actual underlying issues that it thinks it's tackling, and that's probably the worst part about it, because there is some wasted potential and wasted potential and wasted potential. It's just, it's very rare you see a film which handles storytelling so well for a stretch and then just goes in a completely opposite direction. I can't believe the amount spent on poor character um, development, exposition, and also the ghosts. They just weren't interesting. They treated this this massive reveal, and they all basically took mostly took place for a stretch in one person's house. Um, the staging wasn't particularly endearing. And then when it got to the symbolism, think of um, the final scene as the... Andrew Garfield's character is lowered down in Hacksaw Ridge or the scene in Spider-Man yeah. 2, a film I do, I, I'm not actually a big fan of, where, Toby, where Peter Parker is carried through the train after the actual one really good sequence where he stopped the train from going off the, the, train from going off the rails. Um, it's basically on that level. And, and, but they, it's so painstaking how much they linger on it. Yeah, this film kind of merges into another film that we saw a couple of years ago called A Ghost Story and it takes the worst elements of that film and mixes the worst elements of this other film, which is its own film, and then makes it even worse film. But which is like, you know, I didn't think that was possible. What? Oh, God. But it's then it just... Had its charm, but a, go- a ghost story, it was, it was a good film. But I'm just talking no. about, you know, the worst lingering shots oh, about no. people. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> ghost, the ghost story is bad. <laughs> that, that's another fight. We should save that for a we retrospective should. film festival fight. Maybe a Swiss Army Man ghost story. I counted. 36. Right. Nice. No, no, actually, you were playing the game. Yeah, we were playing the game, yeah. That was, but I was enjoying myself. I liked the movie. That was the year with Swiss Army Man, right? That was 20. 2017 Ghost Story Society Man was 2016. There were three walkouts of Society Man. Okay, no, no, I'm just thinking we should do a retrospective uh, worst of film fight. Worst of Sydney Film Festival. Yeah. Of and all we know, time. We all picked Swiss Army Man and Glenn picks it as his favourite. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd go for that. I'd but, love okay, that. So Ghost Town Anthology was one and the other one obviously as I mentioned The Wedding Guest with my favourite actor Dave Patel because you know he's doing amazing work right now and he needs to be encouraged to do more amazing work. <laughs> it's and it's just, not a great movie. <laughs> I, know, I know. But like there are people who just refuse to I, I just I want to meet these people and like sit them down and like pat them and like give them a warm hug because I'm just like it's okay guys you can admit that Dave Patel is making bad movies I, I just feel like I don't know what these guys are seeing I mean he's an incredible actor yes but he's just in terrible projects he just needs to you know just do some acting and less shirtless things which is okay for like two minutes but then just pick a better movie I was just going to say Michael Winterbottom how did I mean, I just yeah. This was just, uh, potentially. Uh, just, 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 I found a, a few of his movies like um, Trisha. I also found pretty boring. A few yeah, years. That, 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 yeah, the, the remake. The remake the of the, the Hardy, the Thomas Hardy. Yeah, um, yeah. This this was just similarly lacking in drive as that film or was. Creativity. There's but this film was new yeah, about this movie. It's very generic. Yeah, it's it, it's 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 beyond safe to the point of complacency. Mm. It's just people will go to see this because these are the people involved. You need to do better than that if you're going to be a marquee film at any number of cinemas. I mean, it completed a hat trick for me with Lion Hotel Mumbai. And now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, the worst of like you know, it's, worst it's, of Dev Patel. It's really good. I mean, like uh, sorry, the best thing Marigold Hotel is a lot worse than Lion. <laughs> yeah, but okay, maybe it's even poor quartet. Like, how, how do you, how do I quantify the hate for Dave Patel and you know the stretch the stretch <laughs> of time? Man. Quadrilogy. Quadrilogy. Uh, you can know. have a box set of it with, with your, your critic quote on the front. But like, actually, to be honest, I, I got to admit, like Dave Patel has been keeping my critic dreams alive because I feel like the only written review 
reviews that get published of mine have been Dave Patel's in the recent past. <laughs> so actually, I got to give him credit for keep doing keep doing the movies you're doing because you're really keeping my career alive. So thank you, Dave Patel. So thanks, shout out to Dave Patel there. Oh, I want to mention another bad one I saw just briefly. Um, Monos. This was just. Okay, Ian, before, when I asked him what he thought about this movie, he said, um, oh, maybe it's because I was just watching it as a screener late at night, but I kind of like half like checked out and half watched it. Um, but I saw it in the state theater and I kind of checked out and half watched it because it's just so boring. Um, it's do you, you saw it as well, yeah, right, Stephen? I didn't quite have that sort of... I thought it had some flaws, but I thought it had some also interesting, also had some interesting things about... I mean, it is a very much a Lord of the Flies type, yeah. type recreation. I thought the interesting thing was the, the roles of the different characters of this sort of palace child soldiers. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there's some frustrating things like, I mean, the, 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 this whole overwrought dramaticism um, is, the I think, the, the thing that really was frustrating. And the sound would go up at the most obvious... Moments yeah. of oh. So you had to be sort of led. And yet there was enough dramatic aspects. Sounds like here comes the, hell. the issue we're, for we're, me is I just didn't find the characters interesting. Um, I thought it was going for this just, you know, fairly obvious war is hell kind of point um, and over laboring it with, yeah, a lot of like big shock sound big, design yeah. and I see that. You see, to, you hear a lot to try of, to like jolt you a lot of plays you get in those, those, those bad 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 production of plays where they go with the big overwhelming loud mm. noise you go this is dramatic yeah. if anyone yeah. who saw the recent City Theatre Company production of Cat on the Hot Tin Roof um, you'll know exactly what they're referring right. to I'm seeing this on Saturday I think it's the uh, kind of screening at 645 it just, well, I guess we can talk about it more after then but it, 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 just, it was like misery porn to me you know like what's the point yeah. of it I'd mildly disagree with that because I do think that there are some redeeming aspects of the sort of powerlessness of child soldiers and I think you have to. I think the characterization is difficult because they are still children and they've never been given a chance to really develop. Mm. And it is kind of that sort of that sort of sav- savagery, that man gone wild type aspect. That sort of Hobbesian sort of all against all, the sort of 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 the sort of aspect and the sort of uncontrollable, and how that sort of totally psychically crushes the characters. And there's that interesting thing of like characters like Rambo, who is probably the most gentle character, mm. is assigned the role Rambo. Yeah. Is, is the most reluctant warrior in the thing. Um, it's probably overlabored, but there is some interesting elements in that, in the, in the different characters. It's just that it's just gone too much for the let's play the drama. Mm. I, I skipped Monos, thankfully, because of Chris uh, and his recommendation. <laughs> right. But it gave me the most unintentional laugh of the entire Sydney Film Festival with the tweet that the Sydney Film Festival put out promoting the film. He said, the child soldiers are here, dot, dot, dot. And I just... I saw that. That was hilarious. Like, that was who, hilarious. Who, I was like, someone's been fired. <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't see the whole tweet. Soldiers. In fairness, I didn't see the whole tweet, so I'm not sure what the rest of the tweet said. Was it just, yay, that, child soldiers, just that? come no, and see yay. them at the, the child film soldiers festival. are here. And then the monos. It, 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 it's kind of like how that short. <laughs> the British are coming. Except the science of child soldiers. The British are child children. Not completely different. <laughs> totally different about this comedy involving uh, this local. Like, I, I appreciated oh a good laugh. Like you know, good on you, Sydney Film Festival social media person, whoever did that tweet. You know, right? Yeah, you have a good career ahead of you. So the last film we're talking about, dear God, um, is a film called Judy and Punch. It is an Australian premiere. It is a uh, film Vic story, and it's post-produced in New South Wales. It is from Australia's Mia Mira Folks. It is starring Mia Wasikowska and Damon Harriman. Our interview, the two, our interview with Mira is up on the 2SCR page on Festivals and Falcon screen, and it has a couple more screenings throughout the festival. It's incredibly disquieting and disturbing that there are two films that played in the same day at the City Film Festival, uh, both funded by Australian state agencies, 
both star and Damon, Her- Damon Herriman in the role of an abuser, which both feature graphic deaths of children. Like, just stop and think about that for a sec. That's really strange. How was that allowed to happen? Why did no one say these two films are kind of similar and one's from a very first-time director and, by the sounds of it, had obvious script problems and one's from an already internationally acclaimed up-and-coming Australian auteur. It's not going to do any favours to finance both of them, right? No, I mean, there are coincidences at festivals, certainly, and there are two SA Film Corp films, uh, one of which is The Nightingale, which has strong Irish influence. I remember the one year that the two Bolivian films about in, at MIF where Daniel Rackler film and the other film was about... Cargo? Uh, no, no. It was the one about uh, getting lost in the Bolivian jungle. There were two oh, jungle. And Lost City of Z and cool. Jungle, both screened yeah. on the same day. That's fine. But this was a little stranger. And But having said that, Judy and Punch is one that... High, and I, 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 am, I think it's unfortunate that The Nightingale has gone on a lot of the negative press it has. And I think a film like Judy and Punch highlights just what was so considered and well depicted and well executed in The Nightingale versus what comparatively was not done so in Judy and Punch. The comparisons don't stop there. Uh, both main female leads, both are described as a female-driven revenge story, go into the nearby forest to rec- uh, get local people who have been shunned to help them uh, take revenge against those who have done the wrong and harmed them and their family. Uh, but having said that, the comparisons really stop there. This is, importantly, this isn't a genre mashup it's a tonal mashup it plays very fast and loose with tones the three main actors are in three very different movies Mia Wasikowska fairly given what has happened to her character is playing it very seriously Damon Harriman is shifting unseasonably between very serious and a light lukewarm comedy it, the, the the combination does not work and another character who's playing the main cop is playing it as if he was Hugh Laurie in a bit of Fry and Laurie and none of it totally makes any sense um, and uh, I would encourage you to look up uh, my full piece on this on uh, over on Falcon Screen. But the issue with this film, uh, there are many. Uh, to, going back to the tonal elements, there is a sequence later where a character manages a Matrix-level crouching tiger hidden dragon um, physical stunt, which the likes of which had not been included in any of uh, the, the sequences that are thus preceded it. Um, I understand the, the premises itself is really interesting, the idea that you're doing an inversion of the classical Punch and Judy story, which is a story about a man who is consistently assaulting his wife and looking at examining some of the issues therein. However, the approach the film takes and the tonal confluence, which is very clear and very muddled, uh, does not take a discernible stand on how the film feels about violence. And I feel, for reasons discussed previously in regards to extraneous violence, I feel it has the effect for casual viewers of glamorizing or championing it rather than dealing with the consequences thereof. That is a very serious problem. Um, I feel there's an entire subplot involving an abuse of a secondary female character who is not Judy, which has no bearing on the outcome of events. And therefore, again, you have to question why this was included. It doesn't tell us anything about Punch's character. You already know he's an indiscriminate abuser of both men and women from his treatment of others. And if this is included, the focus becomes more on the violence and on the consequence. And that is a serious issue which people should be aware of when constructing films, and certainly when deciding which films to choose. Um, moreover, um, to the treatment of some of the other victims of Punch's actions in this film, there, and I understand this is played for comedic effect, but there is a very sherry reveal that happens at the end of the film, which uh, could just as well have resulted in the harm to these characters. And I, it's, 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 it's one thing to say that we're going for 
a fun, irreverent movie, um, or as was stated in the City Film Festival Guide, a batshit crazy one. That's an actual quote. But you can't just say a film is funny or outrageous. You have to, I mean, the comparisons at this point are very common with, would be with Tarantino, but Tarantino and directors of his ilk, uh, when they depict violence, either depict it in such an exaggerated, clearly exaggerated form to emphasize the inhumanity of it, or depict the consequences of it, whether it be a semblance of justice or whether it be tragic for those who would seek to use violence in a form of vengeance to account for violence against them or others. Um, there's a lot more, uh, except for this film, the staging of the forest sequences were lousy and made absolutely no sense logically. Hearing uh, Glenn, I haven't seen it, but hearing Glenn talk about this film the other day, I just thought the combination of Tarantino-esque pop culture references and extremely graphic depiction of violence against women. And children. And children sounds in so bad taste. Oh my God. I can't see that possibly working in a, in a any way, but... I mean, I'm just, uh, you know, kind of in awe of the fact that you then went on to interview the director and did a bloody good job of it. Oh, that's very very kind. I mean, I was really curious for this interview because I wanted to, I was curious to what perspective she approached it from and I wanted to unpack some of the issues. So a lot of the questions around um, the depiction of violence and else in the film was put to her and that interview is up on the 2SCR page. People can listen to it. Yeah, I recommend people listen to that rather than go watch this amazing, amazing atrocity. So that is Judy... Batshit crazy atrocity, actually. Batshit yeah. crazy and fun. Are there, before we wrap up, are there any movies we haven't oh, covered? I, I, that just, briefly I just put a note when Judy and Punches oh, is screening. Um, it is screening again tomorrow night, Thursday at 6.30pm at the Round Regrets. Before we wrap up, I was just wondering, are there any films we haven't spoken about that you just want to throw in a quick recommendation for? Oh, before we do that, um, I just want to note, I should in fairness note what is good about this film, and that is Mia Wesikowska. She's excellent as always. Um, Some of the set design is quite decent, particularly in the main town, and there is an excellent one-liner involving how a bunch of ruffians are experts at obtaining confessions, which I think everyone at the cinema laughed at. So I will give the the film that, but um, it stops there. Fair enough. So, Chris, I'll ask you a question. Yeah. Uh, so, just before we wrap up, are there any films we haven't mentioned that you just in briefly, for anyone who might be listening, want to throw out a recommendation for that are still upcoming, maybe? If you like African cinema, Akasha is playing. It's a Ugandan film about a comedy about soldiers who are on leave. Um, there's a lot of their budget, I think, was on one shot during a drug adult sequence. Um, there's a fantastic supporting actor who, play, who helps the guy out. Um, it has a very trademark dark African humor, which I appreciate and have appreciated since a very young age. So if you're looking for an African film at the cinema, there's always a few good ones at the City Film Festival. Uh, you should check out that one. Yep, uh, Ritesh Patra's uh, follow-up to the Lunchbox photograph, which is playing in the state at Friday, 4.30, just before the Jim Jarmusch Dead Don't Die. I would recommend that double. It's going to be pretty fantastic. Jim Jarmusch, for other reasons, but photograph is a much interesting, more mellow take on how a photographer and an unlikely person come together uh, in the most unlikely circumstances. If you've seen The Lunchbox, which is a, his previous film, it's a very warm take on relationships of unlikely people coming together and finding meaning in each other. So if you like that kind of cinema, and that was a smash-out hit uh, because of the audience uh, uh, liking So if you're looking at the film, which you can, you know, as an audience member, you want to go out and take a chance at, this is probably one of those films which is quite a safe bet for you and not one of those, you know, risky bets at the film festivals which people look out for. I really enjoyed In Fabric. Um, I, I think really want to see this. Yeah, yeah I was surprised. That I was. Did you get to catch it? No, too? no, I didn't. I was surprised no. at how much I liked it. Um, it it's got a great combination of the kind of um, retro kitsch and comedy sourced from that. 
but at the same time it also plays that kind of um retro throwback style seriously uh but yeah there, there's a great balance of comedy and actually unsettling horror i love the way um this, this is put together visually with this kind of frilly feminine style which um along with a bunch of other moments in this film feels very indebted to suspiria um the second half of the film doesn't work as well as the first half for me and i really think it should have been trimmed down uh it's still good but the first half um manages to evoke um empathy for its characters and the second half goes for a more easy style of comedy rooted in condescension and i think for that reason it um there just isn't as much sustaining it anymore and it in terms of the horror basically repeats itself but um, it remains funny and it remains visually inventive. Um, so with that uh, disclaimer, I'd, I'd still really recommend it. I also think um, some of the documentaries, just quickly, Martha, A Picture Story I um, is a really warm portrait of um, a cult hero, essentially a woman who documented the rise of graffiti culture when no one else was interested in the subject and received, you know, changed people's lives but has no recognition outside of that area of interest, essentially. And she's an amazing interview subject. Um, she's 70 years old and just full of life, um, always doing interesting things with the camera, like the opposite of Steve Bannon in that in that regard. No media training as the director, who's an Australian, and it is an Australian production, uh, as she mentioned in the Q&A after the screening. Um, the American Factory is also very good. Um, at It's about... Uh, a Fu Yao, a Chinese glass manufacturer for car windshields and windows, um, trying to open up a factory in America to replace a um, employ people uh, who left were left out of work after General Motors shuttered. Um, this film it takes an obvious perspective on the side of American values. Um, you, the union movement, who are, of course, very incompatible with the Chinese overlords of this factory. But it, I think, despite having a clear point of view, I think it was fair. Um, I think it, it tries to give voice to all sides and it tries to understand where these kind of um, fundamental disagreements are rooted. All right. I mean, there's a few. I think there's already got already been shown, but things like uh, Clean Up, The Deposit, and Retrospect are, I think, three films that. Be really, we, I think we haven't covered be, any be, of those. It'd be great to cover at some time. But yeah. of the films that um, are still coming, um, I think um, the Brazilian film Divine Love is certainly a film that uh, a sort of satirical look, yeah, and a sort of futuristic look. I mean, we actually we actually caught Divine Love. I think I think all of us have seen it yes, now. We've right? all seen it. Yeah. We may as well talk about it now. Uh, we can talk if about we've it got now. Time. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, Divine Love is the film from the director of Gabriel. Neon Bull. I don't think it's as good as Neon Bull, which was one of my favorite films of of uh, recent years. But the, but I think this one's good. Um, it's a Brazilian sci-fi set in the near future about a group called Divino Amor, Divine Love, which it uses sexual therapy to promote an evangelical connection between you, your partner, and God and, it's and the it, church. And it's set within a context where evangelical politics seem to have taken over. Yeah, the, there are these bureaucracy of the actual... And mass-produced. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the best scene in this film is when she just goes through a drive-through chapel. 
<laughs> I thought that was fantastic oh, because so good, and just the, the the idea of just subtly including what is futuristic. I remember the first X Men film did this quite well. Just subtly, include, this is what the future is, rather than saying you're now in the year twenty twenty three, and these are the advancements. Mm. Uh, I really liked. I didn't like the film as much in the second half. I feel that it got too, went so, too long yeah. getting to the plot. I thought. Well, I don't mind that it's too long getting to the plot because I think it's really not a plot based film. It's really about um, sketches and interludes. It's really more about the location than it is about the plot the issue for me is more it's um that in the second half these sketches repeat themselves i'd be okay with watching a purely kind of interlude and sketch based movie like a roy anderson style if you saw pigeon set (laughs) on a branch reflecting on existence yeah Yeah. um with uh, but the issue is that in the second half you know the point has well and truly been made i think and most of the instead of expanding the world further i had a lot of questions about how this world works and there are many aspects of the society and the belief structure and of this cult divine or i'm not i'm not even sure if they are a cult or how well, state sanctioned it's, it's, it's actually quite interesting how actually the sex scenes were very well yeah. i was going to get to that yeah, sorry. Yeah. i was just going to talk about the structuring of how the, the actual narrative is actually structured between the sort of relationship of the main the main character who works at the bureaucracy and her husband and their desire to have a baby and how fertility is sort of fetishized i just thought it was interesting in this sort of mm. the, that this all these sex things is how the sort of the fetishization of the body and i thought that was really interesting drawn mm. and then the sort of the sort of emptiness of their relationship of the sort of how they've because of the combined the sort of the cult of, of sort of evangelism with the sort of cult of the body. I thought that yeah. was a re- yeah. And ultimately it shows how empty their belief system mm-hmm. is. Um, Glenn mentioned earlier this scene in a drive-thru. I think it showed that, you know, a woman comes through with genuine questions of theology and they don't actually have any answer to it. So their response is to blare up the sensory overwhelming, you know, yeah. turn up the lights, turn up the music until you mm-hmm. just feel a sense of awe and go well, on your way. And at, by the end of the film when a genuine and huge um, theological issue comes up uh, for the main character, she's pretty much rejected mm-hmm. completely. There's nobody there to understand her. And it shows that, e- you know, even the oh. value system that this state is claiming to be upholding, they fail to... They Basically, fail. she's some, referred to an almost an Orwellian type yeah. body. She's told to check in. I mean, you have these things where they go through scanners. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, yeah, so I just thought this, this idea of... And it, it, it is interesting with, you know, the, um, the films like The Hand, Handmaid's Tale. I mean, it is a very interesting, particularly... And with the yeah, sort of... The clamping change, down the, on women's bodies. Changing down on women's body. And we, you know, we just with the Brazilian politics too, with the transformation. Mm. I mean, that has to be talked... I and mean, we, we talk about some of the Brazilian films in the festival. And this was certainly... There's one of the ones one which was really good on that subject, Baccarat coming up, which yeah, Baccarat, which I'm really looking forward to. You can't, but just avoid Marighella if you can. I really liked how this film drew an analogy between the mass bureaucracy of government and what had become the mass bureaucracy of religion. Um, they're very interlinked in this, but uh, elements we can see there of both in different countries uh, were brought to the fore here, and I think it was artistically very well done. Um, also, what was artistically very well done was the sex scenes. Usually, uh, sex scenes are filmed at um, are quite intimate or quite flashy or have a lot of jump cuts. These are films that are removed, drenched with neon, and just allowed the actors to um, progress throughout the sequences um, very intricately in several well-staged ones in different environments. The choreography of the sex scenes is, is fantastic. Yeah. And, um, the, and, it, and the music, that sort of climactic, really bad dance music, which is that sort yeah. of false climax, of, you know, which is, also ties into the sort of happy clappyism of evangelism. And yeah. it, it really did look at the sort of holiness of this, this idea that you could just create your own... Mm. Yeah. Really, but yeah, the religious world without really dealing with yeah, the even, big spiritual questions of life. That's they're, they're exactly right. Off. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really like the kind of like Hillsong approach yeah. on a mass scale. Mm. 
but yeah, the um, the sex scenes are striking both in as Glenn was talking about, like the distance, but also they're just really well choreographed. They're really physical in ways that you don't usually see on screen. Um, completely believable and uh, just striking and beautiful to watch, really. So I don't think Divine Love's playing again as part of the festival. Yes, it though. is. It's on oh, it Thursday, is. Oh, Thursday night. Thursday night. Oh, fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So one, one, one to catch up on. Good catch. Um, a couple. And the other, of, other one I mentioned, the doco, is briefly Shooting the Mafia. I just think it deserves a, uh, it's a good 80 minute, 90 minute documentary about a photographer that documented um, some of the Palermo during the, um, all, the, all the killings during the um, 80s and 90s, um, which of course included. Um, judges that were involved in um, trying to prosecute. I think it's very interesting, and it is not just about the sort of the, the tragedy of how much damage the um, that um, the, mm. the um, Torres Torres Nostra did on the people in Palermo and adjoining stations. Also, a, a very interesting story of life. Her own personal story is a quite a captivating film of this woman who actually escapes from growing up from from the oppression, the very patriarchal oppression of her society, and quite um, interestingly then. Um, has a has a degree of um, interesting relationship with a lot of, lots of young male lovers. So I thought it was a, a, a really good film to, to catch for 80 minutes. Yeah. Um, another couple of flicks I've managed to catch, The Wind, part playing as part of the Freak Me Out section, uh, a couple of excellent performers. Uh, it has one of the best jump scares of any film I've seen this year, or actually for quite some time. I've uh, staged very well. It combines ideas of Western frontier and horror to great effect in many sequences. I would Some of the cinematography is gorgeous, However, I feel it really falls back on tried and tested tropes of this genre towards the second half, certainly the role of a preacher who rocks up. And it's a bottle thriller. I'd recommend it if you are a fan of horror. The other one I caught is Animals, which is the Sophie Hyde film, the Irish-Australian co-production that was financed out of Adelaide. It is selling on Holiday Granger and Aaliyah Shortcut. Would you really recommend it, though? Animals? I mean, oh, well, I've got, I haven't got to recommending it or not yet. <laughs> but I, what I would say is the... I like this film a lot, and I didn't mind a lot of the craft. However, I would say that the subject matter is more interesting than a lot of the execution. I found uh, the very blatant explanations by the L.A. Shawkat character about what was going on uh, to be very frustrating, particularly a sequence where Royals is deployed uh, to sum up the uh, moral of the film was was very well done. Having said that, um, while... It did show a lot of what was going on in Dublin and the music and cultural scene. I feel that it was simply transposed from Manchester to Dublin, the original novel, and isn't as lived in about Dublin as maybe uh, many of the films that screened at the Irish Film Festival were, including Dublin Old School, which I'd recommend checking out. I don't want to keep the podcast going too much longer because, man, we've gone for a long time, but yeah, I wanted to I've tell got- you guys to see, uh, you know, when, um, I'd like to discuss this when you guys have seen it because you really should see it. Um, it's got an extra. It's sold out on Saturday night, but there's an extra screening at Monday night, uh, which has been added. Midnight Family, which is an absolutely amazing documentary. So um, hopefully we can discuss that in future. Anthropocene yeah. was also really good. So is One Child Nation. It's a great, great. Uh, the the documentaries. The documentaries strong. have been way stronger than the fiction films in general. So thank you for joining us for our Sydney Film Festival coverage. And thank you, Stephen, for joining us and Ian Barr. Um, We have been discussing a lot of serious issues on this episode. So if you do, if there is someone you would like to speak to about any of the issues raised in the course of this program, the number for Respect is 1-800-RESPECT. That is 1-800-737-732. And they are a service that discusses um, people impacted by violence and family to violence and assault. Um, Thank you for everyone for joining us. We will be back on Sunday at midday with much more Sydney Film Festival coverage including our review of the much anticipated Bong Joon-ho's Parasite as well as many more Baccarat 
and Baccarat, and many more. This has been Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans, Stephen Hill, Ian Barr, and Varane Nehru. Have a wonderful night or morning or whenever you're listening. Enjoy movies. Have a good night. Live movies, love movies, repeat.